Hey everybody, welcome to Fuzzy Warbles, the Skint Julep Music Discussion Podcast. Uh, after a long absence, we're hiatus. back. We yes, we had a hiatus. Um, I had a low hiatus, but yeah. this was a high one. I, I tend to go for the mid hiatus. The mid hiatus. Um, it may be that kind of night, guys. It's been a while. With me tonight, as always, is Jeff Scruggs. Howdy. And we've already heard from best-selling writer Matthew Kern. Hello, hello. Thank you guys for joining us again. Matt, what are we drinking tonight? Uh, this is a, a <coughs> barrel whiskey aged in a Pedro Jimenez sherry cast. That would be Pedro. 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 We had a long discussion about a movie major league, and it it, it goes off the rails from here on, folks. Just, mm-hmm. just yeah, enjoy exactly. it. Uh, it's quite good. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's not bad. It's on the tongue quite nicely. All right. Tonight we're going to talk about albums from 1971. Why you it may was say fifty years ago exactly. today? Exactly, it's 2021, so we're exactly fifty years, half a century away from these albums. Uh, that's uh, one almost one fifth of the time this country has been in existence, and uh, that gives us plenty of time to sort of have some perspective and see which ones have hung and which ones haven't. And it was a watershed year for rock and roll for a lot of different reasons. First of all, if you take the uh, the premise that rock and roll started in 1955 as a, a force in mainstream popular music with uh, Bill Haley and Comets and Elvis, <coughs> it was entering its adolescence at 1971, so it was 16 years old. But the one thing we talked about a little bit beforehand, it was the first post-Beatles year. From 63 onward, every year in popular music was dominated by the Beatles. Everything revolved around what the Beatles did. And this is the first year it was kind of left open for other bands to kind of stake their claim. It didn't look like all the other bands were answering the Beatles as it tended to look before. So a lot of good stuff came out. We, we, when we first started talking about this, we were a little surprised at how much good stuff was on here. In fact, each of us has five albums. We agreed on four albums that will go into our top tier that we'll talk about last. But uh, we we all, and, and there's some personal favorites in here. There was a couple that did not make any of our lists um, that were kind of surprising to us. Um, and before we get into them, let's talk about some of the stuff that, uh, that, that you may have put on your alternate list that didn't go into our final cut. Uh, Jeffrey? Well, on let's see, alternate list, I have Tarkus ELP, mm-hmm. uh, which for them was basically. A lot of people are still going to tell you that's their finest moment. If you're not in it, was it was. Oh, I love the ELP. Yeah. I, that's that. Them and King Crimson are about the only prog I can stand. Yeah, that that that's uh, that's going to say that happens sometimes with prog. You either love it or you don't. Uh, some of the others that wound up on. Um, and I'm pretty sure we covered uh, Low Spark of High Hill Boys. I like it because that's one that just covered so many different genres. You had folk, classical, and I'm talking, you know, with, with as is typical with traffic, some of the folk is, you know, best rooted in 1541. Couldn't, couldn't make up its mind, basically. Yeah, it, it, and, and those were uh, just a couple of albums that were released that year. We've got some others we'll go over later as well. Uh, Matt? Uh, a couple of mine that were on my alternates, and I think a couple of the alternates matched up. I think we both had, um, I had an alternate that was on your list, which we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, I had Nick Drake's uh, Brighter Later album. Real upper. Uh, yeah. Real uplifting. Yeah. 
He's uh, he's notorious for his optimism. Nick Drake, Mister Laughs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that's going to come up here after a while too. But I okay. think I think a lot of that, like if you go back and listen to that now, you'll you'll hear a lot of what later ended up in bands like um, uh, specifically Bell and Sebastian, like that kind of music. I think you can draw directly back to to Nick Drake. I had my Vishnu Orchestra's Intermounting Flame. Um, which I don't even know if it's their best, but it came out in 71 and it's pretty good. It was their first, so there you go. Um, and I think that's all the alternates except for, I guess you're, you'll, you'll, we'll talk about yeah. the ones that, that obviously didn't make the cut well, here. Let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room. The one that did not make any of our lists, um, and it was down lower on it, but none of us chose it, Led Zeppelin Four. Right. Which I've seen listed as the greatest album of all time in a few polls. Yeah. Um, Stairway Fatigue. Stairway Fatigue. It, it's just, it, I, 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 speaking from my generation and, and more Jeffs, I don't care if I ever hear anything on this again. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me. I had it. I still, I think I still have the vinyl copy. I never, I don't think I ever bought it on CD. And I don't really miss it it's yeah. it's not an album and, and you can talk about its greatness parts. but it's you can talk about its greatness but i don't think it's worn that well I there's really there's that scene in uh in wayne's world where they're in the guitar store and you know the, yes. the kid starts playing and the guy points to the sign that says no stairway I, th- I think that's just basically where every musician and everybody involved in selling music kind of got to with with zeb well, you know, the opi- go ahead ben. my opinion on this one is is it, it, to, to me, it still does, because a lot of those tracks are rooted, as you would expect, in, in a lot of blues pastiche. So some of them do hold up. The problem is, is to me, this is the classic case of burnt toast. I mean, this literally has been beaten to death by every, as, it, it, as you want to call it, classic rock. I could now call it middle-aged nostalgia music, to late middle age now. But it has literally found its way on every radio. I, there are places, I'm sure, and radio stations where Stairway still gets played four fucking times a day, rock and roll probably three, and it's just too much. The album yeah. itself is still a, a seminal work. And if you listen to it, but it, it's just there's something there, yeah. but it doesn't yeah. really have I think the same. issue with Stairway is that it never went away. It hit it no, immediately it and then just no, stayed. And I'm well, it's not it's like, like Bohemian Rhapsody. Where Bohemian Rhapsody you know, came out and it wasn't really, didn't make an impact until later when it was featured again in Wayne's World. Frankly, and, and that's another one I can go the rest of my life without it. Right, but it's, it's got the same yeah. thing, an anthemic thing that I'm kind of over. Well, when I'll tell you this. <clears throat> in the 90s I played with a band for quite a few years called Doc Bombay and when, here, I, here. when I joined them they were called I love this name Bad Cats and they were um, they thought real hard on they that. still did Led Zeppelin and it was like 1989 or did <coughs> Stairway and it was like 1989 and I said you're, you're kidding me right you still do that I mean even in the 80s we were going god damn this is so played out right now Jeff you remember <coughs> radio station here in town still here yeah WSKZ when they probably still get window wings well when they first came on the air every night at 9 o'clock they had their top 6 at 6 and how many years did Freebird Cocaine and and Stairway to Heaven go somewhere 1, 2, or 3 every night it was I mean it was just and it was an integral part of growing up in that time but it it's nothing like I say I haven't listened to Jim our buddy Reverend Jim 
put it best. He said the best way to listen to Led Zeppelin is to not listen to him for like 35 years and then revisit. I found that to be Which true. is what I've done with some of this stuff. Yes. There, to me, growing up, there were three songs that by the time I was 30, 35 years old, I didn't ever have to hear again. One was Stairway to Heaven. Two was Freebird. And the third one was Layla because they, as Matt said, they don't go away. They are always a presence. You can turn on a radio station somewhere, somebody right now There's is fly high, free bird. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just these are the standards of the the rock era. I can still listen to Free Bird though. The live, I can, I sure can. I, can. I cannot. Um, we also had there were several more that uh, I had, and I think you guys have touched on as well. Uh, Roots by Curtis Mayfield, right? Muswell Hillbillies by the Kinks is a very underrated record. And uh, on that, because I've discussed this with. Uh, uh, both Brent and Matt, at some point we're going to have to get into, and we will, I promise you, into bands like the Kings who haven't had a big presence in our show. They really haven't. They should have. Are the the five year, six year run? I actually said this to somebody recently. Five six year run that, that the Kings got on it equals anything just about that the Beatles did. I mean, you they know, got. You think Beatles, Stones, Who? As yeah. being those big three. Yes, they are. And then you kind of got Pink Floyd hanging around there. Kinks don't get mentioned as much as I think they should. And uh, they should. They were very influential. They maintained quality up until the end. Where it is, Dave and Ray may be recording together again. I've heard Which that. is either scary or... It could be. It could be, it could be scary. But Speaking of which, yes, Muswell is such a great album. It, it really is. I love it. Um, a Miles Davis live record called Live Evil. Oh, yeah. And I talked about right. quite a bit. Uh, a couple of them, I was a little wild, surprised, other than um, Led Zeppelin Four. nobody mentioned. Joni Mitchell Blue is generally considered. Blue, I think uh, Carol King's Carole King Tapestry. Tapestry is on here. One, I it was bubbling under for me. Uh, two of them actually were bubbling under for me was uh, Killers by Alice Cooper, which I still love. And uh, just as a personal favorite, one album I've listened to a lot over the past 30 years, 40 years, uh, phase one by Art Ensemble of Chicago. Mm. It's not uh, it obviously does not have the universality of these other bands, Ooh. but I would advise anyone giving it a listen to. The only other one, and it almost went into my top five, and it was recorded and released in 1971 on an independent label. I mean, it, it's probably a lot more influential than we won't even talk about, and that's uh, Pieces of a Man by Gil Scott Heron. Which oh, contains yeah. Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Now, the thing is, the album went in and out pretty quick, and Revolution was only yeah. a flip side to something. Um, and the rest of the album was a bit spotty, but you're talking about a song, and, and the rest of the album is, is very good, um, that kind of invented hip-hop. I know the yeah. last poets have to be considered, but... Um, no, I, I'm with you. I think, I think it's, it, it's one of those that it's not so much that it is an album that you could listen to and say, holy shit, this is revolutionary. But in retrospect, it absolutely is. Well, when I hear it, when I li- and I listened to it the other day, I listened to The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Yeah. It's amazingly prescient. Uh, absolutely. It, it, you know, you gotta. it's got some seriously dated, I mean, it mentioned Spyro Agnew. Right. Uh, um, General McClellan, Richard Nixon. I we'll mean, tell that joke discussed. sometime. But, but it's, it's got, it, it still maintains a certain relevance that is missing yeah so to me it's a lot like a Gainsborough's album in that it was here it was present at that time it had a huge impact and but it's one of those things nobody plays anymore you have to right. listen to it yeah to, but to the really, social things that he was getting at yeah. are still needing to be got at so you and I have talked forever about how Whitey on the Moon is one of my favorite oh, cuts brilliant. of all time 
Okay, let's get started on our individual top fives. Um, I think I started out last time. Fair enough. Um, so we're going to go ahead and work in, we're sitting in a certain order that we've sat in ever since we started this. Pretty much. So, Jeffrey, I'm going to let you go first with your number five, the fifth uh, on your list of your favorite number albums. Number five. Albums from 71. Albums from 71. Yeah, you know, you just can't. What a year. What a year. Okay, so number five on my list is actually going to be Pink Floyd Metal. Uh, the reason why this one and to me this one had such an impact too on me personally you know other than just being a big moment this is basically the point in which Roger and and Dave in one of the few times they agreed which would be any time <laughs> or, or pre-1972 had gotten tired as David called it of the psychedelic noodling and stuff and wanted to do something in the here and now and I believe Roger described, uh, you know, the, the, the two things that are going to stick out on this album. I mean, you can listen to Centropez stuff like that. But one of these days is one of those spacey, wild, rhythmic tracks that, that, that still was rooted in the old sound that they were doing. But, I, I mean, with the update, especially with uh, equipment updates and production updates, really brighten the song. <coughs> but the biggie there is always going to be echoes. As Roger said, this was the beginning of empathy for him. And this is where their songwriting went from black and white to color to me. That that's a very good uh, definition of what happened. I, I tell you what, I, I place metal right behind Dark Side of the Moon on my list of favorite Floyd out. And and I think we talked about this before. I came late to Pink Floyd. I couldn't stand him until I was like forty one years old. And all of a sudden, I, I had to stay home. I had some uh, vision issues, and I couldn't work for a few months. And had and I went back and listened to their entire catalog. Are you catalog. saying that once your eyes were closed, your ears were open? My, they once, yes, they were. They were. And well, I, I, metal is the one that's, that I really dug yeah. through and through. Well, to me, it, it's the one where David Gilmore comes into his own as yes, yes, one of, of the, the great band. rock and roll guitar players and a guy who's going to be maybe not always like uh, holding the reins, but he's going to be like kicking that horse and propelling yeah. Pink Floyd forward from that point well, on. Well, what what you come down to is is Roger and David at that point, rather than you know, I, I mean, yes, careful with that action. Gene's fun, and a lot of those Sid Barrett things are. You know, I mean, at this point, there's no your, your songwriter's gone. He's gone off the deep end. But they both had something to say. Well, and let's not and let's not forget those other two guys. I think no, and we should. We, we often forget because we end up talking about how Gilmore and Waters were in this power struggle that sort of defined some of their music. Nick Mason and Rick Wright were geniuses in their You're own incredible. right, and they deserve a lot of credit for the success of those records. I don't think you had any other two guys that they would have worked. And both had a background in. Jazz, no less. Yes, they did. And they it did. shows through in Richard's playing and Nick's playing, yes. where Nick, to me, has always been more the way I feel about him. And, you know, and as some, it, a drummer, you, 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 Nick Mason, somebody you notice quick, it's more of a percussionist. He loves the sound he can get out of his time. Did you ever hear the album, Nick Mason? It was called, the album was called Nick Mason's Fictitious Sports, and it was all called... Is that car- the one with the race car on the cover? No, it's got a big oh. dice, or the, okay, the, right. the, the copy I had. Um, it was all Carla Blay compositions yeah no, well, that, and it was really good record but yeah that that album to me is probably one of those it and uh it, there, there's there's that i guess you could say four album period i just want to put it that way in closing between where you have metal it was a strong as hell you have run, dark side yeah. you have wish you were here and you have animals they to me it never got and it never it was never it was as good as it got yeah it 
I mean, you can even drop the wall off. That is, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot about that that's good. But there's too many areas where it's uneven, and those other albums just don't have a whole lot. I'm waiting for one of us to slip one day and talk talk about the brains of Division Bell. Um, <laughs> Matt, um, 71, uh, this is an interesting uh, year for all of us because, uh, <laughs> well, there was no Steely Dan released. No, it was next year. There was, there was um, several bands that were yet to kind of come. Uh, Warren Zevon had not done a real album by right. that time. yeah. Um, so some of our normal touchstones are going to be missing here. Sure. And that's a damn yeah. good thing. What was your number uh, number five? My, my number five was uh, John Lennon's Imagine album. Now, it wasn't Lennon's first album. They released the Lennon uh, plastic, plastic uh, Ono Band, Ono Band album right in, I think, December of 70. So uh, it, it, this, this amounted to, when it came out, like, the second album in less than a year, yeah. but it wasn't technically 71. That's my favorite John Lennon concert. Right, and it actually has some of the same songs just done in a, in a bigger arrangements than they had done on... It's a more realized record. I right. mean, you could say, there were, Plastic Ono had a lot of raw stuff on it. Sure. Plus it had preponderance of Ono shit. Right. It sure um, ain't two virgins. Uh, you know, stuff like that I can live without, but, yeah. but I Imagine think I, was such a fully realized album. And right. again, post-Beatles time, however... One of the Beatles was really making, as you mentioned earlier, making that impact. He's right. Say something. Well, and and George Harrison is all over Imagine. I think he plays mm-hmm. on like half the tracks. That's on it. How do you sleep? Is is my favorite Lennon track because George. Right. We talked as about Lennon that, put yeah. it at that time. He's never played that good in his fucking life, and that's yeah. straight out of Lennon's mouth. Well, so. and you know, a lot of this album was written by Lennon in a period where he and Paul. Where their relationship was incredibly acrimonious, you know, they Lennon had come in and basically said the Beatles are over, and then Paul had sued to dissolve the legal portion of yeah. their relationship, and you know, so it was very contentious, and that really comes out in the music. But but the other thing is that the, what you see in Imagine is what you're going to see over the course of the the Beatles themselves. They're all going their separate ways, and I just got done watching that the Get Back documentary. I was wondering if we were going to touch on. Yeah, it's it's great and well worth watching. And in a lot of ways, it made me feel better because I thought that that had been a particularly contentious period. And it turns out that other than a few days of of them trying to figure out what which happens in any band, right? That once they get it together, (laughs) it's really together, and they're loving playing with each other, and it's obvious. It's a lot. There's a lot to yeah. decompress in that. Okay, there, there, there really is. It's, it's got a lot of information. It's got a lot of stuff. But watching the creative process that those guys oh, are it's, going through—it's brilliant. It's, it's amazing to see some of that. Yeah, it like really in the way, and we've seen some of it before. In, in yeah, you know, yeah, in the, you know, but but they can just bounce be. ideas off each other in a way that's like. They were composing on the fly, yeah. but it's not like Paul ever says, "Well, what what the hell did you mean there, John?" You know, like they don't they don't have to. They, there's there's an inherent trust because of the relationship and the time well, spent. See, I think that plays to me that plays into Imagine because it, you look at the two albums when they're juxtaposed between him and McCartney, and how much better Lennon's album is to me because John worked so well off anger. Anger was yeah. an omnipresent force in his life. The way he grew up. The things that had happened, the way he felt like everybody had fucked him along the way, it really all pours right out on Imagine, and and that's anger's a big part of his creative process. Well, it, it, Paul I'm, I'm doesn't a, have that at that Paul, point. Paul doesn't. That's why Paul's music is generally less interesting, it is even though it's got more melodic content. Right. I'm going to tell you something. I think, and and we, we, you and I, all three of us are just vociferous in our defense that George Harrison's one of the great, yeah. underrated talents of sure. all time. 
And a lot of what he put out the last the few years after the Beatles broke up were kind of extrapolations on what he was already growing and dealing with sure. at that time. I don't think there's an artist who ever exhibited more growth as an artist after his initial splash with the Beatles. I think he grew more as an artist after the Beatles than any of them did. Well, and it's, I really it's interesting to watch in the documentary because you see things like one of the songs that he kind of demos for the guys as like a possibility for the album is what's going to be All Things Must Pass. Yeah. Just like John plays one called The Road to Marrakesh, which is going to turn into Jealous Guy later. I mean, it's obvious that, that a lot of those ideas... Maybe his title will be are, borrowed somewhere else. Right, are already in the read. works. Well, if you listen to... The, in, in that special, we're getting off track here, but to listen to the special when they're doing that embryonic version of Get Back, and he starts parodying... parodying Enoch uh, Powell right, and, and referring to the Pakistanis and stuff like that it's a place Paul doesn't go to a lot right? and it was really fascinating to me and yeah, like, yeah. you know y- y- you could have done something here but um, Pete Brown described uh, and, and then I'll leave the subject because I know we, we can really cover a lot with these Pete Brown described him uh, Paul as having that Baroque show uh, you know I guess you could say minstrel show cartoon type expressiveness in a lot of his music and that does come through and I view him he's probably the most naturally <coughs> talented of those four as far as instrumentally speaking and, and that sort of but the creative process for him dies so quickly and you're left with a technically proficient musician in a lot of ways who who can to me has always been able to write a bunch of mediocre fucking AM gold songs. Okay, we were talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, Paul, excuse me, Sir Paul, yeah, inducted the Foo Fighters. And in Dave Grohl and Paul McCartney, you got these two guys who are relentlessly upbeat and cheery. Yep. And there's a place for that. I'm not knocking it. Okay, and talented as hell. And both of them, yes, both of them are deeply, deeply talented. And but they're very similar in that respect. Sure. Um, but in each case, they and maybe I'm stepping on your toes here by by jumping in and saying this. Paul, you know, Paul had John to balance that out, yep. and Dave had Kurt, who who isn't a relentlessly cheery person, no. which is why we listened, <laughs> right? And, and, and right? That's, man, that's the reason we were paying attention. Which is why honest, John and Kurt wrote more interesting music. Yeah, I mean, they do. The food. Listen, we're we're not going to go off on the food no, or anything no, like we that, will, but. I mean. But uh, for all their merits, rock and roll is kind of an angst-ridden yeah. art form. Sure. And when we kind of drop out of that, it generally tends to turn into cabaret. And there's nothing in and of itself wrong with that. But even stuff that's like, you, know, you would think very sweet pop stuff like Brian Wilson, and it's, there's an edge to it. Right, an undercurrent. An undercurrent that's not there. With Paul McCartney. So what we're saying here, folks, is that uh, your, guys, foo, your foo, foo Fighters are the modern-day wings. And guys, you heard it from us. And guys, Imagine is a much better record than Ram. It is. Yes. That same. And, and Concert and, for and, Bangladesh came out there. The Beatles were out there doing all kinds of great stuff. I think, though, in, in listening to this album again, as I did the other day with Imagine, after watching Get Back, I think that John wasn't, <coughs> wasn't just mad at Paul. I think he was also kind of mad Paul wasn't still there. Like... There was, was a, a there was a part of him that both missed Paul and hated Paul at the same time. It was a contentious breakup between you know boyfriend and girlfriend, really. Right. I, you know, or boyfriend and boyfriend. Well, it's two, and, and, two and lovers up, who found other lovers. Yes, and when you do that, there's a certain 
anger phase that you have to go. It's it's right. an inevitability. Right. Um, that doesn't mean you're always going to be striking out at him, but it it, it is there. And uh, I, I'm genuinely glad. Well, if, if you ever listen to uh, Elton John did a concert at Madison Square Garden on Thanksgiving night in seventy. 73 or something like that I have to remember I can't remember exactly 73 we'll have to get our buddy Indy who's going to be on this with us in a couple oh, yes. of weeks we'll have to find out the date for him but uh, John Lennon came out and did three songs with him and their version of I Saw Her Standing There is it rocks it's incredible mm. okay. and yeah. Paul, uh, John introduces it as this is a number from an old estranged fiance of mine <laughs> called Paul <laughs> So last thing I'll say here, uh, Billy Preston was amazing throughout, and that's all I'm going to say. Wasn't he though? Oh, yeah. I tell you what, I went on a Billy Preston tailspin after that. He's the glue, and 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 I never appreciated it as much as I did watching it and seeing what not not just what he does because he's an amazing musician, but what they do knowing he's there. They 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 really have you seen it, Jeff? It, not all of it. Uh, I wanted to wait. When, when, when Billy guys. comes on. They pick up their game. Yeah. It's like, oh shit, there's a real musician here. Yeah, man. and it's like, it's funny because this is the Beatles. You know, this is the greatest band in and the they history are in of pop all music. Almost but Billy they Preston. know they're not at the level of individual musicianship as he is. Yes. And him being there makes them stand up. And, and and not just that, I think that the big contention here wasn't a John Paul thing. It was a it was a George Paul thing. Because a George was, yes. George was was a little resentful of a I don't get all my songs to, to be even listened to and b you all are trying to direct me in a compositional uh, way that and and I'm not really comfortable with it. Once Billy's there, no one's telling Billy what to do, and George is playing off Billy, and and it, and it there's just a certain freedom works. there that is that was missing. And they sound yeah. great together. It's it's go watch it if you have uh, the uh, in the excerpts um, that you see of that particular. I mean, before he had done Get Back, but the pieces of uh, Get Back that had been released, you can see when Billy's in the studio, they're laughing, they're joking, they're smiling. Yeah. They, they actually it. appear to be engaged. And then but after that, even when, and right. even when Billy's not there after he's initially been there, it just seems like it works better. It seems like it's more tied together. Yeah. It does. What's your number five there, Brian? Uh, my number five um, is Tupelo Honey by Van Morrison. You're looking. Can't, can't, can't be. Ah, yeah, I, mean, Jeff, I thought Jeff was looking at me like, "What the hell are you talking?" About? No, I um, think that's. Yeah, I mean, this guy, <coughs> in the midst of a lot of landmark albums, band and street, street choir, or street choir, if you're Elmwood, yeah, if you're Tweety, uh, Astral Weeks, um, of course, Moon Dance. There was Saint this kind Dominic's of Preview. lower keyed Saint Dominic's Review. Is, you're right. I, My favorite I, album. I'm on. T- we've talked about, and yeah, that's that's I'm, right. I feel almost dirty for not mentioning that. <laughs> um, Tupelo Honey came out. And this album has some personal resonance to me. I just bought it. Um, I think it was the first Van Morrison I ever bought. And I kind of, kind of late to Van. Um, and it was only at the urging of... Uh, there's a drummer here in town named Bob Corder. And Bob and I had talked about it. And he goes, man, you need to listen to Van a little, you know, because he's, he's a huge Van head. And uh, I picked this up because... I loved the song Tupelo Honey's. Yeah, it's a, that's gorgeous. Great. Just a beautifully and uh, there's only one real rock song on there and that's Wild Nights which opens the album. The rest of it is I, I hesitate to say folky because there there are drums, there are arrangements on it. There are there's musical interplay. This is not a mountain music album or just a strict folk album. No, this one's got but, more polished than some. Well, of this. and this album, okay. 
it's it's kind of a departure for something like Astral Weeks, which for years, um, when Jeff and I were growing up, was one album that came on everybody's best of list. They oh, thought that sure. was one of the greatest albums of all time, and it's kind of forgotten about now. And it probably should be because it hasn't worn extremely well. It's still a great record, but this one, it breathes just like Astral Weeks did. It has certain more, but it has more prosaic attitude to it, and it, and it touches on things that are a little bit more. There's a lot of uh, you know, he, he was going through some stuff with his girlfriend that comes out on there. Um, yeah, he's in the he in the process of, of he's moving to L.A. Yes, he, he is. But he's he is, stopped in Woodstock and wrote this album. And he wrote this record, and it sounds like something that was written in Woodstock. It, it, it owes a, a little bit to the band, uh, I think, when you listen oh, sure. to it. It's Everything at this the point. Americana has really gotten into fans' veins. The Belfast Cowboy... Listen to the band, didn't right. he? Yes. Um, well, this, this to me has better. You mentioned Astral Weeks. To me, one of the reasons why it stands better is this is a far better produced album too. Oh yeah, I just never found. Weeks it's a much be. more. It's a much cleaner record. It There's is. a certain crispness to it's it. It's like Moon Dance. A, a, a um, lot of the, uh, and especially the way the songs are structured and built, they play cleaner. And you know, it's just a very. Easy well, we talked about how each of us tries to listen to the albums when we're doing an episode, I always try to listen to the songs or the yeah. we're going to talk about. <coughs> and we haven't mentioned it. We were going to be doing this show a couple of weeks ago. We had some technical difficulties. We ended up talking about it for a little while. Well, I listened to the Astro Weeks, pro- not Astro Weeks, excuse me, Tupelo Honey, probably five times since then. And each time I hear a little something different, I hear a little more, a little echo of something real there. To me, it's almost what, he was trying to do with Into the Mystic. Mm-hmm. He's reaching this kind of yeah. homespun earth energy zen that is it's it's different than any other thing that was released. And when all these other albums we're talking about, um, again, it's not a frivolous album, but it's not an angry record either. In fact, it's very, which is not something you say, because there's an undercurrent of anger in everything the band does. Uh, in the last few years, been an undercurrent of stupidity and everything. Yeah, it is. But it, it really has a certain... Contemplative, I don't want to say contemplative. Well, contemplative content with stuff. Even though he's going through all this stuff, it's it's there's something about it that really brings out. I don't want to get too faux deep on it, but it brings out a lot about the human condition if you listen to it very well. Sure. If it, I had one complaint to make about Van Morrison and his career is that he's he tends towards the excessive. Uh, he tends sure. to, but but this album really avoids it. I'd say better than almost everything else he, he's ever done. It's, it's much. None of the songs seem like you're just listening to him play to hear himself. Like they're all they all end almost before you want them to, except for the last track on each side. And by that point, you're you're happy for. You're it. almost yes. It's it's a because that's you're my woman, which is it's a perfectly simple yeah, track. It's a good album. I can put if I'm just doing something in the house. That's one that I actually will throw on and go. This is good to hear. It's, it, yes, it, it, exactly. the, the, it's not. A, it's not a mood. It, it, it's not an album with a lot of mood change to it. You know, it doesn't rock that boat. It kind of feels like it's just songs that are that are yeah. plucked out of the atmosphere. And yeah, presented, and it, you know what? When we say that, guys, over. it sounds like it's some sort of tepid new age shit. No, no. it's not at all. No, it's, it's more got, just very in touch with itself. It's got some muscle to it, but it's sure. it's it's a lot more uh, subliminal. A lot more. It make a fine uh, jazz album. It, well, so, as most al- yeah, as albums, most of Van Morrison's early really. stuff does. It. So there's our opening salvo. Jeff, what do you got as number uh, four on your list? Okay, number four. 
which actually I had pasted this in such a hurry, I didn't put two twice, but I knew where this was. Uh, number four on this is actually going to be uh, uh, Nilsson Schmilson, Harry Nilsson. I'll get to that one. Uh, the reason being on this, to me, the, the reason why this was at Number one, it, it, it's a, a collection of who all played on that fucking album uh, that, that helped Harry get to this point. We've all heard, hey, there ain't a kid in America that grew up when, well, even Brent, I, and Matt did, that has not heard the Coconut song. No. It's catchy, it's fun, and you know, it, it's a lot like, uh, I hate to draw the obvious on it, I, the message is not the same. But it's a lot like Belafonte's. Uh, it is. It's got. It's kind of a, a silly little. It, it is, but it was one that managed to stay in American consciousness forever. Well, and did you know it's the only um, number one song of all time that has no chord change? No, I didn't know. It that. is a C throughout the uh, whole thing. It is, and well, that it just gives you an idea of the kind of genius Nielsen had that he could make it not sound samey. Well, and know? that's what I was going to get to in some other ways uh, because I will tell you rather quickly. That uh, the appearances on this album are Jim Corden. I don't know what he was contemplating at that point. Uh, Jim Keltner, Gary Wright, Klaus Vorman, and Herbie Flowers, among others. But there were so many guest appearances on this album. Uh, and these were people, I mean, these were giants in the industry. People that really, really, names like This Gary, was the A-team of the time. It, it really is. Was. Uh, guys it really like, was. Uh, like Keltner and Gary Wright were, were pretty much present in a, in a lot of really great music. Uh, you know, it's got, of course, uh, Without You, which everybody, that song has been recorded by about 800 different artists. Yeah, it won a Grammy for uh, Nelson. Uh, it's not his, though. It, well, no, it's P. Hand. It's a right? Badfinger song, yeah. Uh, but, it, well, I was going to say, we'll, we'll come to that later. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be another point. But what I wanted to, and, and but I still like Harry's version of that as much as I can be said to like that one. Well, even Badfinger said it was... Yeah, Harry really made it. It's kind of like all along the Watchtower and Hendrix. But... The, the thing that, the track that's always hit me there or jumped out at me, so to speak, is Jump Into the Fire. And for anyone, in deference to our bass player over here, for anybody that says a bass cannot be uh. the main instrument in a fucking song, this song actually makes drums and guitar as parsley. Add-ons it, it because does. the bass drive. And well, the not, bass, he's just he's awesome. just in the middle of it, just starts tuning it down. But yeah. it's not. But it doesn't. It's not like he's playing hot licks. No, this it's is just solid groove all the way through. And it's best known. Let's let's face it. It got a new life because it was in uh, Goodfellas. Goodfellas. But Mark, this this bass run to me is a lot like. Uh, it's got the kind of thing that, uh, say, Tina Weymouth does in Psycho Killer. Yes. Her, her, Herbie yes. Flowers of T-Rex. Guys, there is, there, there yeah, is that's another. That song is one of those underrated classics to me, um, and not just because of the prominence of the bass. It is It is one of those that has, there is a, a certain goddamn, well, it's why Scorsese uses it. There's a nervous energy to that. That's Well, that's the thing. That is not really a, a standard Nielsen thing. No, it is not. And, it, it's, uh, and there are people who will tell you that Nielsen was... Is, is one of those, the great underrated pop genius of all time. Um, and he never, you know, he, he won a Grammy. He was always consistent, but he never really broke into that second echelon. Um, and and he, he's, he's always been one of those guys who will remain a cult figure, I'm sure. I don't see him going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This was his magnum opus. It this really was. It for him. It was good. Yeah, it's always weird to me to think that the same guy wrote uh, this and the puppy song. Yes. Yeah. 
The like, puppy song of nothing. How does the same dude write? Well, I'll tell you what, guys. While we had mentioned the Beatles, there is a Nielsen yeah. uh, documentary. It was on Netflix. I have no idea if it still is. I recommend anybody watching it. It talks about his, you know, how he decided he was not going to be a performing artist. He was going to be a studio artist. Um, and this Lost Weekend, too, comes into it. Well, it does. I mean, that was a little bit later. Yeah. But, but it, it is, that was probably what he's more famous for. If you think well, about but it. that was deterioration for him. It was, I mean, and he really died did. tragically young. I mean, he, yeah. he wasn't uh, very old when he passed I mean, away. Lennon kind of, to the best of his ability, pulled himself out of some of that and started seeing life. Nielsen never really did. Nielsen he was just, always, yeah, Nielsen, well, I think it, if you become a studio artist, and you can kind of see this with uh, guys like Brian Wilson again, you become very insular. It, yeah. it, it, it becomes, you, you don't have a lot of the outside stimulus that you've got, stimuli that you've got other places. Well, the cover of that album speaks volumes. I mean, it's him in a fucking bathrobe on a darkened cover. Like, yeah. that's pretty much, it okay, is, you've it got is. Harry Nilsson right there. So, okay. Matthew, what you got, bro? Uh, my number four is the debut album uh, by your favorite, Bill Withers. Uh, Let me clarify. <laughs> I don't hate Bill Withers. No, you just think he shouldn't be in the Rock and Roll I just Hall don't Hall. think he is quite that If you reliable. had to pick a guy who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to be gone, that was your pick. That was my not, pick. Not that you hate him, I know. That was my pick. Um, there are others I think deserve less. Right. Uh, I don't want to say any names, but Stevie Nicks comes immediately. <laughs> of course. So anyway. Um, uh, but that was Bill Withers' uh, debut album. Uh, it's produced by Booker T. And the thing about it that is, you know, you, 71 is a really, really good year for R&B. Uh, oh, we'll talk a lot about that. Yeah, in a few minutes, we'll, yeah, we get into that that a little bit more later. But in this case, it's uh, Bill Withers was was not a strict R&B musician. He had a lot of folk influence. His all of his guitars feature this. Uh, acoustic guitar strum yes, they do. that isn't something that normally happens in R&B but because of that it's just a really propulsive album you go and listen to the Harlem which is the lead off track uh, which isn't one that you know is a huge hit or was a huge hit or anything and it just drives I'm going to tell you something I went and listened to this after we talked about this a couple of weeks ago um, I listened to this record I tried to listen to everybody's record although I don't feel the need to listen to every one of them um it's much less traditional right. than I, I think I gave Bill Withers credit for before. And I still don't think he's a, an innovator of his sure. yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a very, it's a singer-songwriter album. Right, yeah, Ain't it No really Sunshine's is. on there. Yep. He covers Fred Neal's Everybody's Talking. Um, he covers Let It Be, of all things. Yep. But, but every time he does that, it's, it really is, he makes it his it's own. It's his own. Uh, and then, you know, it's got a couple of songs. Ain't No Sunshine was the hit from it. Um, but it's got a song I know, called I know, uh, I know, I know, Sweet Wanomi. I know, I know, I know. Which I know. is about, uh, you know, uh, being in love and, and, and making love to, to a sweet little girl over there in Okinawa where he was stationed. You know, and, and stuff like that is just, it's so kind of disarmingly honest that it's, it's I don't know, to me it just, it still resonates uh, there's a song on there's there. There's a certain innocence to that record that, right. that I really wasn't expecting to hear. There's a song on there that, that that every time that I that that I play, Bill Withers, it's one that comes up and it's not a hit, but it's called "I'm Her Daddy," uh, where it's about this guy who's who's talking to an ex, and he's he's saying you know he's asking about this girl, and, and the question at the end of every verse is, "Does she know I'm her daddy?" And and the way he does it, it's it's a very simple narrative, but it almost becomes a bigger kind of. Uh, social question 
of of you know this generation of African Americans growing up without a father figure, and and him wishing that that they were more present by saying he wishes he was more present. You know, we're going to talk about certain albums that we that were would be considered R and B black consciousness kind of records. This one could take its place in there. It's it's not one I would have chosen, but it's it's kind of the same way. There's a certain realization there that I, it's. It's a much better record than I remembered it being. Yeah. Well, it's going to be hard not to be good. This is the personnel. It was Bill Withers on guitar and vocals, Stephen Stills on guitar, Booker T. Jones on keys, uh, Duck Dunn on bass, Jim Keltner on drums, if not Al Jackson sometimes. It was, it was basically Booker T. and EMGs. It, essentially, yeah. And, and you can tell when you listen to it, a lot of it is them goofing around in the studio and then going, hey, that's good, we ought to hit record. See, that, by the way, he says, I know, I know. He says, I know 17 times a half. You know how I know that? I know. You I played with a drummer who had to count it, so he got it just, you know, it's like, and I'm not going to give the drummer's name. Uh, and it must be a drummer thing because I had another drummer one time when I was much younger who counted how many times Billy Idol said I sweat and dancing with myself. It must be a drummer thing to count phrases. But that does not sound to me like it's a contrived number. It sounds like he was just almost scatting. No, uh, he's just playing because the drummer know? there is, is is playing the beat and everything else is dropped out, mm-hmm. and he's just grooving over. Who it. Who is it on that song? Is it Kelly uh, or is I it uh, Al Jackson? I think that it was Al Jackson Jr. on that song. Al I'd Jackson. have to look and Al make Jackson sure. was guys that the world needed more of. Yeah. Now I, I do have to count though if I ever try to hold that note in a lovely day, where he holds a note oh, for what amounts Ooh. to like sixteen, twenty, thirty minutes, of, I believe. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's my. Which is now as a commercial. Yeah, for, uh, some insurance. It's funny something. once a musician dies that their music suddenly gets. They don't. Ask you know, the, the the family says, "Hey, we'll take some money there." What's your number five? Uh, um, four now. We're on. Number four is tribute to Jack Johnson by Miles Davis, which is kind of a lesser known record out of all of these. Miles had had uh, you know, Bitches Brew was was in the mix. He had become more of an electronic musician, and a lot of the electronic music Miles did at that time, he basically did collage style. He would just get in and jam with these guys, and then he'd pick and kind of put it was studio craft. Yeah. This one's got a little more organic feel. Now, there's only two songs to it, um, and it was originally meant as the soundtrack for a an aborted film about uh, heavyweight champ, champion Jack Johnson, who was living a pretty radical life for a black guy in the uh, like uh, teens. Um, had a white wife, drove a Cadillac, basically made no apologies for who he was. No. Which at the time was the a brave statement. Giant. It was a brave statement for a black man to make. Of course, when you kick anybody's ass in the room, yeah, I guess I it's a lot that. easier to make it. Well, but but we're talking about the Jim Crow era having a black guy fighting for the heavyweight championship yes. of the world. It, that, that he was the first black heavyweight champion, I believe. I believe so, yeah. Um, yes, and, he was. And he, uh, but this record is. And of course, Miles was a huge boxing fan. Um, and this record, there again, there's a certain organic quality to it. It rocks. Uh, at this time, something was coming together called fusion, which was the melding. Basically, most most bands took the worst aspect of rock and the worst aspects of jazz and combined them and into this. Jeff Lorber. And just yeah, into this garbage. He uh, this was a, a jazz record that rocked. Right. Um, and we'll talk about something that did the opposite a little later, but it really has John McLaughlin playing the main figure on on the first cut, which is uh, Yesternow. 
it's it, about as good as it gets uh, right off. Right off, right off. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yesterday I was on the other side. The B side. Um, Which, there's two tracks on this, so yes, A and B it's, is it's, a little... <coughs> and they are... I don't that's think about he, as good as it gets, by the way. Well, and I don't think he did this one like he did a bitch's brew where he just did strict collages and stuff. Yeah. I think it was a little more organic and it's a little more towards what he was later to do on on the corner and stuff like that. Um, but it's there's really a vibrancy to this thing. And you know, Miles has done more great way albums into jazz than any other yeah. artist jazz produced. This one's another one. This is one I played obsessively. Um, when I was getting into jazz and it was just such a again it rocks it's not there's not a it swings and it rocks it's one of the two few albums that achieves what Fusion tried to do I think it it, there is a a case to be made that this is the great Fusion album oh I think so I think so now there's other great albums sure but it's got a certain there's something about this that it achieves both well, I, I think I think that the the it's I think it's honestly more listenable than Bitches Brew. It may not be as innovative, which is why Bitches Brew gets it's certainly more accessible. About. Yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah. think this is one that you could put it on to a person who wasn't desirous of of you know sitting at the altar of uh, of Miles Davis, and they'd get why this was important. Well, that's all. And I think every other fusion album jazz. owes something to this. Well, yeah. As someone who's listened to the entire box set of all the Bitches Brew sessions, <laughs> right. Uh, and I ended up having to make myself do it. Yes. Um, it, it's this album, and there's a deluxe set of this that has some a other stuff on the back. Yeah. But this one is just, it's its an incredible document of a time and a musical movement. And it probably is is the very the very pinnacle of it. I, I Like you say, I think its it's got, there's something there. Again, its if you listen to it, you're thinking it's more rock than jazz or more R&B than jazz. But it's, uh, again... I'm gonna have to give it a twirl. You've never listened to it. I have not. I will bring. You know, it's unexpected. I think for a lot of people that don't get the way Miles Davis influences musicians is that uh, Iggy Pop said that this album was one of his biggest. I have heard that. I have heard. He said in the mid '80s he went and found a copy of Sketches of Spain and the Jack Johnson uh, in like a used record store, and that's what he wanted to do. It, it, It is. It influenced. You know, and there was a lot of bands that took elements of jazz. Uh, MC5 comes immediately to mind. Uh, and, of course, it was a little more of the far-out stuff. Yeah, it was. This was a ja- Again, this was a jazz album that took elements of rock and incorporated them perfectly. Yeah, and, and like most great fusion albums, you got two keyboard players, I think, depending on the side, yep. Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea. you got Billy Cobham on, on uh, yeah. drums on one side, and then uh, Jack DeJohnette. Well, when it comes side. to Billy, that's, that's, that, that is Mr. Fusion. I yeah. mean, so well, I mean, if you're but, going to have him, you're going to have. But that's that what Miles brings to the table, it. isn't just that Miles is, is a genius and that Miles is the great Miles, jazz performer. Miles, it's that Miles can go, hey, greatest musicians in jazz, why don't you come over here and let's have an evening together? Miles was the most catalytic artist in history. Yeah. He could take disparate elements and make them a coherent and cogent piece. And that's what he did on Jack Johnson. Jeffrey, what you got? Number three. We're going to number three, and I'm going to basically at this point, the, the, the four guys that spent all their time in the sun in California had passed their A day. I'm talking about the Beach Boys. The album is Surf's Up, but this album still had something to say. Yes, it and did. the first place to look for me for this, the thing that's most interesting as I've gotten older, it, 
the album itself is interesting to me, period. Because uh, it serves almost like a warning, uh, you could say, and, and, and a very ironic, cynical one in some ways at that. But definitely, the, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. That, the album's called "Surfed Up," "Surf Up," and it's and, and basically, you're used to seeing these guys in you know white striped button downs, you know, sunny background, and everything else. And you look at this uh, particular album cover, and it's end of the trail. These were not right. your father's Beach Boys. No, the, the, this it this wasn't. was not. And I mean. And I mean, with songs on there like you know, uh, "Don't Go Near the Water Till I Die," th- these these are not the happy moments of the Wilson Boys' life right here. You don't, and you don't get that from this. But they're great songs. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a different sound than what you're used to with the Beach Boys. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you uh, from the from the studio values, you can see once again that Brian Wilson is still Brian Wilson. There's still genius in all of it. The way the, the the songs and and specifically some of the chord structures like in uh, "Don't Go Near the Water," I it these just jump off the vinyl. This is really a great album to listen to. I'll just tell you that I at the end of it, I wouldn't expect you'll want to. Uh, you know, you're probably not going to go out and and hear "Surfing USA." That's that's putting it mildly. Un- unpopular opinion here, and this is something I talked to our friend. Matt Thorne about um, Mike Love had creative influence in this record and us really Mike Love he, he, uh, this guy's Matt's point was Mike Love kind of had some of the hooks and in many ways he did he had some of the hooks for this and <coughs> and this in records that came up he had a much more there was a certain creative input he had there well, I didn't know he's that. a dick with ears. There's no doubt that Mike Love's an asshole. You don't have to like him to acknowledge no. to acknowledge that he yeah. really did. And uh, that's kind of David Crosby. But exactly, yeah. a very good uh, analogy. Uh, Surfs up though is one of those records that I, I remember getting through the Columbia Record House or RCA, one of those record clubs, <clears throat> and listening to it and being somewhat surprised. And, you know, they kind of got a little further afield of that later on, too, with Wild Honey. And, yeah. Uh, but it, it's uh, it, it's not a record that should be ignored at all. It, and it's kind of considered one of their lost... Uh, no, it holds up now as a It listen. does. It sure and, does. And, and, and the overall feel and tone of it, when you listen to it, definitely holds up in our current environment. It does. Because it does. It's, it, it's an album that... Uh, I mean, it, it suggests that hope is kind of a far off, distant thing. It, it's a bleak album, but but it's beautiful in parts. It uh, and that's again, as you said, I didn't know Mike had a big influence. To me, it's it's been one of those where where you know Wilson's been. In, this is one of those where one of his turns are coming on, so to speak. It is. It is. And 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 that shows up in this album. Um, and and it it's also got some serious. They brought in some. I mean, Van Dyke Parks is the. Yeah, they brought yeah. in some other musicians. or were starting to bring them into the, the, the Beach Boys universe at that time. Yeah. Uh, you know, more on the road than on the record. I think that. But it, Blondie Chaplin and guys like that yeah, were starting to yeah. have a, an impact. This is an album that makes the Beach Boys hard to dismiss as, you know, a, a pop fun. Surfboard yeah. uh, pop group that was essentially doing like. Uh, please please me only with matching choreography. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a grown up record. 
Yeah. It really and it, and it really when you look back on it it was like you know it, it's it's kind of part of the cultural zeitgeist at the time. It has some of the same thematic elements that you're going to see in like uh in Marvin Gaye's release of the same year. Oh, well that said. We'll talk yeah, about that's later. good. But they're they're definitely like they're that's picking up on the on the social unrest and the social changes around them and turning it into what really is a fine musical album. It's it's a great it's a great from from beginning to end it's something worth listening yeah. to. Yeah, I think this is one I haven't listened to in a while and I I like I say I had it so I was pretty familiar with yeah. it. But uh, it, it, I think it's a great choice. I listened to it last week when I knew we were doing this podcast. I still want to get that back down because I hadn't listened to it in a few years. And yeah, it's still, the music still holds up. And I did want to say, uh, uh, Matt, I think what you, it, it, this would be the album I would say that your, you know, Surf City Beach Boy fans would be the least likely to buy here. But this is the one that kind of, it's kind of like a, for that time, up to that point, this is kind of the exception that proves, hey, wait a minute, these guys really did have have a lot of a lot going on, you know, between the the talent guidelines that you know you wouldn't know if you just listened to a lot of that older stuff. You know, there's a real. It's really funny too because the band at that time, uh, it was coming out now that you know Dennis Wilson had that association with Manson. Yep, and, that's right at that time. And it was there was kind of a darkness about the band at this time. That was previously not there. Yeah, um, I mean, even Carl was, you know, it was was prominent. And the only thing that ever seems to bring Carl Carl out of anything was 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 desperate unhappiness. Man, so. Carl was the American George Harrison. Yeah, okay, pretty much. he really was. He was a very underrated. There's a bootleg going around of his solo record that's pretty good. I've um, never. Heard it it any never of got that. released, oh, wow. but uh, it was never finished. Matthew, what you got up? Uh, my number three is the uh, Traffic's uh, fifth album, which was Low Spark of High Hill Boys. And other than the title track... I was thinking track, it was on there when we were going through the other one. Yeah, right. Other than the title track, it's not one you're going to ever hear on, like, classic rock radio. Um, Maybe rock and roll stew. Yeah, that, 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 that might, might, might come up. Um, I mean, but it, it's it's got... So it's the only of Traffic's album where the drums are Jim Gordon, who yep. is going to come up, I think, now, what, three or four times Yeah, on he's this going list. to be present. Uh, <laughs> you know, he is the great rock and roll drummer at the time with uh, Jim Keltner yeah, maybe Jim Keltner, right behind. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, Steve Winwood, who, who Traffic really is his band. All hail. Uh, and, and Gordon had played together in Blind Faith, so Gordon's coming over to do this. Um, this is other other than I think Mike songs. Keeley plays on one track. Uh, uh, well, Reebok uh, actually uh, right. made his first appearance in this album too. Reebok, so. Yep. Yeah, uh, but it's a uh, it's it's just an album that it, it like predates a lot of what's going to come to me at least of the uh, kind of jam band era. It incorporates elements of, of what I like about the first two Chicago albums. It has like it has all these kind of disparate things that come together, and I, I think to me it just is the is the showcase of this era of what Stevie Winwood is, uh, and he and and he's just he's a damn fine songwriter. He's a good singer. He is a great damn keyboard player, uh, and it and as a vehicle for him, I think this is where traffic. To me, at least, reaches its. The, the its only peak. place I have to actually uh, say that, good singer. That's oh, not like saying, yeah, no, mean, I'm we, saying like are he, we call him Monet. Just a decent I, I'm just, singer, I'm just saying that, as, yeah. that he's 
he is a better singer. He is a, a better keyboard player than singer, only because he's a great keyboard player. And, well, and the thing is, is he's no slouch on the guitar either. Steve's one of those multi instrumentalists yeah. instrumentalist that you. He's a real Renaissance yeah, man. Yeah, he is. He is that. Uh, and then, uh, of course, let's not forget Jim Capaldi, who's yeah, yeah. There's some another, of the other yeah, vocals sure. and writes a lot of the tracks with. Uh, but the thing that, and, and I'm sorry if I, when I had that in my alternates, I, I stepped on your point. I, I didn't want to do that. The thing is, is there's so many like different elements and styles to this album that I mean, I got hooked on it real young. I was about 17 when I bought it, and right. I mean, of course, the title track got me first off. Sure. But, but it, I was just struck, you know, listening to it. You know, th there are elements of, of, as is typical with Traffic and Steve Winwood, of ancient folk, or you could say Renaissance folk, and sure, and jazz in this, and 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 and, and of course, then again, straight rock and roll. I th and I think and that's what I really fun. liked about the title track, which is the first one that drew me in, is that it's like a, a modal jazz in a rock and roll framework, and that's you know. We, we talked about Miles Davis. To me, that that usually fusion is just uh, making jazz strictly worse. Uh, but occasionally, you get a rock and roll band who incorporates some jazz elements and really elevates. Well, themselves. that's Gordon's drum work on that, and, and and it shows through. Sure, it's nuts. Yeah. and I mean, and of course, this is the reason why a couple years later, Gordon's going to become the session musician in L.A. Uh, in terms of drums. Because he he can just do just about anything. Yeah, he could. Yeah, he was uh, including murder as murder as family. Yeah, family. exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I just it, it, it's just one of those albums that really to me stands the test of time. And Steve Winwood's involved with so much stuff at that period. And to me, that you know, you've got Spencer Davis, you've got some solo stuff, you've got Blind Faith, you've got Traffic, and this is to me the one that if I had to say to somebody. Hey, check out what Steve Winwood was doing in the '70s. This is the the kind of uh, primer on that. I, I have not listened to this album in probably 35 years. Um, I, I I'll be honest with you. Of all the records we've mentioned, this would be probably my least favorite. See, I felt that way about Bill Withers. So. Um, well, I mean, it's just it's the album itself to me. It 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 it's for all its pleasantries and they're there um, it seems like they're trying to do too much with you know is it, that's just me yeah uh, and I would certainly not I, listen I'm not going to criticize a record without listening to it and I've listened to it and I went through my traffic period um, I never got back to it it's just I, and it's not it's just a you, listen you cannot deny Steve Winwood's brilliance ever um but to me, this was some of Steve Winwood's least, least work, least positive work. I just, it, it's one of those things that I, and I'm talking about this album in particular, to be honest with you. Um, so you can still listen to things like Dear Mr. Dear Fantasy. Dear Mr. Fantasy, and, yeah. I like. Um, Medicated Goo is still one of my favorite driving well, around that's, songs. That's, that's, that's how they actually, like the Almer Brothers, get multiple drummers to work in a recording yeah. session like that. So. But this one always sounded like, we're, okay, we're going to do the rock track next, and then we're going to do something a little... It just it seemed a little contrived. Well, there probably was a little of that. There was, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I guess that, um, that to me, it's, it's that... So you end up with a weird chronology just based on when I started consuming pop music. Yeah. yeah. I, I got to this... Way after I had heard Steve Winwood as kind of an adult contemporary '80s guy, and so 
having listened to Back in the High Life again and uh, the finer things and uh, roll with it and shit like well, those that. Those are great pop out. Yeah, they're they're great. But to me, when I when I hit this one, it was like that's where he's coming from, and it was kind of eye opening to me. in as much as it was like. Sometimes I think that that and, and I'm just this is just me speaking personally. When I hear a musician and I hear them, I pigeonhole them into that's what they sound like. So hearing well, this, it was yeah, like, oh, Stevie Winwood can do other stuff. things, and he's choosing to do this, which is more impressive than just this is what he does. Well, you know, we talked before. Blind Faith was going to be uh, Eric Clapton's version of the band, right? Because he, he was so in love with the band. Yeah. And Winwood was his Richard Manuel. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Boy, we did get a band reference in here, didn't we? Yes, we did. Uh, I'll also mention uh, Warren Zevon's cover back in the highway. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, But no, this is one of those records when you're sitting here talking about it, I'm like, okay, do I need to revisit this? Probably will now. Uh, But it's it's not something that ever hit me like it did you guys. It just didn't. Yeah, that's fair. It's all subjective. And I agree with Matt that to me... When 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 it, when you boil it down, when I think of Winwood, I I this is not the album I think of as much as I like it and enjoy this album. To me, I go to John Barleycorn. To me, that is who he is. Well, you know, John that, well, that didn't come out seventy one. So yeah, I know. and Barleycorn is the one I hear most people say as their best album. I, I'll yeah, be it, honest with you, that's what I, I, I've seen most. I love it. Yeah, I mean, um, that's fair. So I I'm not disrespecting it. Um, it's just something I don't feel like I have. Well, no, no, a whole right. lot to add to it other than a personal opinion. I haven't really. You've said you still that. enjoy Dear Mr. Fantasy, which I can relate like hell to. Oh, that. I, I can't. I yeah. love that. I love that song. I love Shoot Out of Fantasy Fashion. I, I can know. even listen to Crosby, Stills, and Nash version of that song. No, I cannot. I can. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm not saying it's as good as Traffic's by any means, but I can listen to it. So, um, my third, and this is one that I, I think you guys will probably feel like I did about that. Um, Unlike the two of you, I was a recalcitrant Black Sabbath fan oh. from early on. And Masters of Reality came out this year, and or 71, I should say, in the year we're talking about. And it, it was not a departure as much as a strengthening of what they had done before. I agree. Um, I'm not sure there is a song, in kind of keeping with our rock and roll adolescence thing, that kind of looks at teenage isolation as well as Sweet Leaf does. It's just, it's it's a great opening track, and when I mentioned to you, Master Up, what's the first thing we both did? <coughs> you got yeah. it. Um, <laughs> and uh, this album is just so fucking heavy. It is, it is... Sweet Leaf even drops like 6,000 pounds of fucking rock. Yeah, it, there's, there's no... There's no middle ground with this yeah. record. No, this isn't subtle. Uh, even now, I can do without. Uh, oh gosh, um, the ballad. You're not talking about. Che- uh, uh, oh, what's the name of that? Um, we can't remember because nobody listens to that shit. Well, because I was. It's not uh, changes. No, that was Ozzy. No, I know. So. Well, I'm trying to think. But I, I think I told you I was listening to this. What's I, the name I left something at home. I had to come back before I got over here, and I was listening to this on the way over because this one I've listened to a lot in the last few weeks. I run into my house, and it, it, it's it's blasting out of my car when I'm running in, and I'm thinking, my neighbors are going to think some you know teenage kid from 1971 lives here, <laughs> which, which I do, I, you know. I mean, so. um, I, I, not to not to throw it way way back in our conversation, but but when I was watching that Beatles Get Back documentary, one of the things is that they show a lot of the footage that they filmed at ground level while they're doing the rooftop concert, and I had just lived with this uh, notion that all of the adults 
were like, fuck these guys and this loud noise. Universally, every old person they talked to is like, oh, I think the Beatles are lovely, and I, <laughs> I think this music is great. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the thing is we forget uh, just how universal music in general can be. So I bet when you're blasting this, there's some neighbors who are like, fuck yeah, our neighbors are cool, dude. <laughs> Maybe so. Solitude is the song I was yeah. trying to think of. Oh, yeah. <coughs> and even that, I can remember listening to it when I was in high school. Now, I was in high school 10 years after this. I graduated high school 10 years after this record came yeah. out. <laughs> but I remember listening to that, and it's 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 the heavy metal version of In My Room, okay? It, it, it's, it is, and it's a lot scarier. And Sabbath... Man, there was some threatening shit with Sabbath. Okay, they they were most of it. Was it was a five albums are covered in that stuff. Oh, they are. They are. Well, I, I gotta ask, Brett. Mm-hmm. Favorite track off that one? Oh, it it has to be Sweet Leaf. Okay, mine's Into the Void. I like Into the Void. I like Orchid. So I, you're, I, now you're saying yours is the opener, yours is the closer. Yeah, they design it that way. They did. Um, Sweet again. Sweet Leaf is one of those songs that. It just it, it kind of spoke. It kind of spoke to me at that age, um, and not just because I was you know the obvious. I mean, not at that age. I was only ten in seventy one, but it 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 hit home, and I think it did a lot of people of my generation and my uh, in my bent. It was it was one of those things. Okay, this guy gets it. Uh, I do have a soft spot for children at the grave, simply That's because it's just so song. you know, it's it's such a Sabbath kind of song. Well, no, that album was. If you listen, but, Oh, I was going to say. So this album was was universally panned. It was. It was. It was. Oh, yeah. it, but Black Sabbath was. Oh, well, sure. Me, Black Sabbath for years did not get the respect they deserved. No, it at took all. a long well, time. They were hated. They were hated. They were reassessed. The, you know, the kind of the uh, the rock and roll consciente. They, they. Yeah, Lester Bangs just said this album was quote monotonous. Yes, and Lester. That's it. Lester sometimes would have to go back if you'll he later reassessed. It. Yeah, he and Robert were sometimes unforgiving in their fun. Well, and I think one of the problems that they had is that a lot of times, and this to me is kind of true, you listen to Sabbath and you think that that could be on any Sabbath album, right? Like the songs kind of have okay, a sameness, yeah, but s- that's good. That's kind of how they designed want. it. Yeah. Well, um, and, and I, I remember, here's the thing. I re- and, and this always struck me. Uh, especially after listening, that there were there there was a lot of nicking that was obvious in there. If you go back and listen to things like a uh, Wicked World, then I'd be that that is Tony Iommi doing Spoonful. But it, all of it is all it, of but it that's is, the is, point of it. <coughs> it, it it's and it, it grows from. It's no different than the Stones. The only one of the know, first five that's going to sound different to anybody will be Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, because the production there. On purpose is pure mud. Well, see, I think I think four has a little bit yeah, well, okay, of well, sound to it. You, and you could you could make an argument that people would about technical ecstasy, which to me is well. And they started bringing in synthesizers and stuff like but, that. But but Sabbath Bloody Sabbath is just a a muddy, filthy album by design. And you but you go back and listen to Master Reality. It's the only one where you go, okay, this all still sounds like Sabbath. So, it sounds but like you were talking about albums. you were talking about how they were panned critically. Yeah, right. that was something that again. Guys like me took as a badge of honor, right? Yeah, you know, and because um, we were I used remember to press this, trashing our shit. I remember, oh God, who Robert Chris Gal mm-hmm. and his consumer guide. That's the Robert I mentioned. He called it basically said it was a dumb album. Yeah, sure. Stupid. And of course, now we all know that 
Robert doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about about rock and roll. He doesn't know anything about rock and roll. He needs to keep his fucking. <laughs> Especially the harder there. end of it. He, he got nothing. a clue. He doesn't know Dick. He doesn't know anything about South- Southerners. He's an asshole. No. Um, is he still alive? If he is, he's he's well, got to be. Out. He's yeah. got to be over eighty. Got to be. I don't think he's that because the Village Voice hadn't done. He hadn't even done shit in there. I don't think he does. Hundred years. Um, but it, it it was it was one of those things that we took. And, and again, the early Cream magazine with Lester and Dave Marsh. He is. He is seventy nine years old. Okay. Well, that's too bad. He's still alive. But uh, I shouldn't say that. I don't wish anybody death. But some no. people have to die. Everyone eventually. So you know. Well, what was it? Uh, what you said? I've read some uh, obituaries with great satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. But this this was what because they hated it so much was just more the reason. And Cream championed people like this. Yeah. Um, and them, Deep Purple, and Leonard Skinner, all took forever to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And now they're kind of looked at these universally loved uh, bands. They weren't at the time. Sure. They weren't. No, they were hated. And, and, and Sabbath is one of those bands that was absolutely despised, except for their fans. And their fans loved it. And I think that, that really, to me, the thing about this, this album in particular is it doesn't just sound like it's heavy metal. It specifically sounds dark and malevolent, like there is something bad going on. It's threatening. Music. Yeah, right. This album is threatening. And, and I think that the people who dug that, the people that were hip to that, it really spoke to them. I th- oh, I think so. And everybody else, it just left them kind well, of If you uh, want a more confused. recent uh, example of a similar album that was originally at the time, a lot of the rock press gave it shit. Now it, you know, it's considered their seminal work. You can look at Dirt by Alice in Chains, which is a bleak, grim, harsh record. But... I'd rather listen to Low Spark or High Hill Boys. No, no, but, see, but, but, but you have some of that in you that can let you do that. That album speaks to a monster amount of human beings out there yeah. who found nothing redeeming that's, or of social value in the world at that you time. You know, it's funny you mention that. I used to derisively refer to Alice in Chains as Grace Abbott. Yeah, that's but well, I mean, but they but there's, serve. There's some similarities. They serve that same function, and yep. more power to them for it. You know, sure. I mean, it was uh, you know at that time that album. Uh, for for better or worse, Master of Reality and albums like that, and then like Dirt later on, would speak to a, a generation of people that felt disaffected by everything else mm-hmm. that was going on. Not everybody wanted the Beatles' Happy Sappy. Not everybody wanted the Blues cover that they felt like the Stones were. They wanted something that reflected what they were going through. Well, and they felt like that was relatable. This is a heavier album than Led Zeppelin IV. <laughs> yeah. It is There's that. an area, an acoustic song on it, nothing about fucking hobbits. <laughs> so, no, no witches on this one, but uh, or black masks either. But, but it's still pretty up. close. Jeffrey, what you got for your number two? My number two, kind of uh, this this Sorry one, this one has got a special place for me because it this dovetails Brent's subject that he just hit on there at the end, and we just talked about runs nicely into this. And my number two is Bad Fingers straight up. Now this album at the time was panned as basically a bunch of Beatle ripoffs, mm-hmm. uh, Beatles song ripoffs, and mediocre at that. The Rolling Stone review of that was. My thing about this particular album is this right here to me, this is power pop three to four years before anybody even considered mm-hmm. fucking having it on AM Gold. It was. There is not filler on this album. Uh, this to me, this is Pete Ham and uh, 
uh, and and Joe uh, Malik's um, Maland, Joey Maland. Yeah, uh, this is their uh, to me their maturation as songwriters. Uh, if you, as far as cultural impact, I'll just say that uh, Baby Blue has been used in fifteen thousand television shows down the road, including it's the coda of Breaking Bad with Heisenberg, and, and, which is I, one of the great endings. I remember seeing that and thinking, perfect. It, yeah, it, perfect. And it is. Uh, and it, to, to go ahead and mention, uh, the song that we mentioned earlier, by the way, not incidentally, was written by Pete Ham, uh, was Without You, that uh, it was on Harry Nilsson's uh, Nilsson Schmilson album. Yeah, and, and now this and this ties back into what we were talking about before. You know, the Beatles are done, and here and here's an Apple Records uh, group it. and Badfinger. George Harrison is producing this one alongside our old friend of the show. That's another point. Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren. Uh, you know, and and it's done it at Abbey Road Studios. This is all a product of that disintegration of the Beatles and them getting to spend time, kind of, with their fingers in various musical pies. Well, it, 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 that's it, that's the case. And I'll, but I'll go ahead and tell you, the people that, uh, given who they were, and they were signed to Apple, which was like a Apple. Apple was 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 one of those record labels that you know, if they broke out and whistled real hard into the dog whistle. You'd get all kinds of musicians to come running. I mean, even on this one, and, and this actually has a few of my favorites. Uh, George Harrison plays the slide guitar, actually on uh, uh, Day After Day. Day After Day, yeah. Uh, Which I think is a Gary Wright and Leon Russell both make appearances here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Russell, I think, is on uh, It's Over. And um, Al Cooper, who's a, a personal favorite of mine, uh, makes multiple appearances too on the organ. There's just a lot of things here that work, and I've always felt like Pete Ham at the time didn't get shit for credit. He is one of those guys whose whose career, you know, if somebody would make a good biography of it, it'd be worth reading and watching because he's really covered a lot of ground in his time, and there was some real genius in his uh in his in, in some of his written stuff in my opinion. Sure, this is this is one of those bands that. Kind of gets lost in that whole, you know, that whole wave of British bands, and of course they weren't really an early British band. Them and Ten CC, uh, I think of in similar terms. I do, but I, I think um, of these guys as a lot better. Really? Yes, I do. I, I, I don't think of this as better, but I, I, I think of them as, as. To me, Ten CC was so hit or miss. They had songs I really liked, and then some I went, okay. I didn't have as much of a problem with that with a bad finger. There, there's some stuff there that I wouldn't listen to, Brent, probably as much as others. But most of it to me just feels like there's a lot of craft there at a time when, when, when that was almost. Uh, well, and it's quality craft too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, it's yeah. not just tailored humbuggery, you know. It's 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 really quality stuff. What Todd Rundgren was a stroke of genius to have him produce that. That would have been, I mean, what a choice that is for that. Um, you know, I was real late coming to Badfinger because for a long time, you know, my exposure to them was on classic rock radio, which meant that I thought of them as the come and get it band. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I went back and kind of reassessed and it was like, you know, they got a lot of really good songs. Uh, and then I, you, you realize, like... I think that their first exposure to America was they played in a club in New York, <coughs> and they were actually introduced in that club by George Harrison. Wow. And uh, at the time, the uh, 
Apple made an honest effort to push its own. Yeah, the uh, the, re- the reviewer uh, for that show said, most people watched George Harrison watching Badfinger, and then everyone noticed how good Badfinger were, good enough a draw- to draw attention away from George Harrison. My, I've ne- I obviously never saw Badfinger live, because <coughs> they'd pretty much broken up by the time I was old enough. Yeah, that'd been By tough. all accounts, they were a great live band. Just, they, right. they, they really, and it was a real band. It wasn't just a, yeah. Know, um, well, two, two of my favorites on that album aren't actually the two biggest hits. I love Take It All. I mean, it, now it's gotten some play, but it's a song that really holds up to this day. I mean, and it's... I think the whole album holds up. I really do. It I does, think. and it's over. Uh, but then again, that may be because it's hard not to find Leon on something and go, God dang, man. It, it, we're, we're finding that little Southern Always California do. by way of Oklahoma Always mafia. Do. We got Jim Gordon a lot, Leon. Um, these guys were on a lot of stuff yes, they at were. the time. And and one can make a point that they made these albums better. You know, they made them what they were. It just goes to show that real musicianship really does fucking matter does. out there. And real musicianship is not necessarily playing a million notes a minute. No, it is not. Matthew, what you got for number two? Yep. Uh, my number two is, um, it's another debut album, and it is the self-titled debut by Weather Report. Now, this is pre-Jocko. Oh, yeah. Um, but this is... Was that Miroslava too? It is, okay. indeed. Um, and it's it's one of those albums that it's not like you go back and listen to it and think, this is the height of these guys at their powers. But what it is, is it's the emergence of groups that are not just jazz artists playing rock and roll or rock and roll artists playing jazz, but people who are deliberately setting themselves up at this juxtaposition of both. Um, it is probably the weather report I think of as as there had been fusion albums before, but this is the first kind of fusion band. Well, this this one to me was less of a fusion record than a jazz it's more, record. It's more jazz. It's, a, it's more of a jazz record. And, of course, Zavinal started playing around with the electronic keyboards a little more than he did with, like, Miles. Right. Um, and uh, it, it, it was... But you got Wayne Shorter there. Yeah. And if Wayne Shorter is in your band, you are, You're by good. definition... A jazz band, yeah. okay, um, and um, it's it was before they got the electronic stuff a little more integrated, right? So it's got a little more swing to it. But this is a record I used to love, and, it, and you know what, a Jocko. By the way, as we're recording this today, it would have been Jocko's seventieth. Happy birthday! How did we find that out? I found out that too. I can't remember if I found that that to Angie or I was going to say was it, it may have been Angie. Now that I think about it. Um, you know what strikes me when I think of this and, and like the my Vishnu Orchestra said, this was such a time of sonic experimentation. Sure. Yeah, and this one was. And this one was yes, great. Yes, it was. And, well, it, and it, it still stayed, a lot of purists still dig this record yeah. because it's much more of a jazz record. Right. I th- I, and, and I think that, that here is, is one of the, the, the places where if you don't, have an understanding of, of fusion. You can really draw the line directly. Two of these guys come directly from in a silent way, yeah. which is where this all really begins. But you know, and, and I think your your buddy uh, Bob Criscow, uh, he described uh, the Weather Report debut as quote in a silent way played mostly for atmosphere, uh, and then he said the Milesian demi jazz of side two sounds pretty finky. Uh, but the tone poem impressions of side one does mysterious work. Bob, if you're listening, and I will send Bob a copy of this. <laughs> I um, think he should be sentenced for the rest of his life to listen to Paul I sincerely don't console. hope you die. I hope you live a long, healthy life. 
I just don't want to listen to another goddamn yeah. word you ever say. But, but the, tr right. the truth is that this this album is very apparent in retrospect. Again, that it is something that is a kind of a, it, it's it's right there at the the crest of the wave. Something about this record and about the whole concept of Zavanel with a a unit. There are very few jazz bands. Most jazz musicians, most bands are just cobbled together for a particular it's personnel, uh, particular, not, yeah, yeah, particular uh, uh, session or particular tour. And then you'll have some bands that stay together for a little while, a few years. But rarely do you have that self-contained, almost tribal concept that comes with a rock and roll band. Yeah. My old take on it is they'll all have name, they'll have a name up front, and then they'll be named trio or quartet. Too. Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's what most jazz bands yeah. are. They're they're basically a, a, a vehicle for, uh, or, or <coughs> helping the vehicle for an individual artist. Right. The uh, the only now the outlier here would be modern jazz quartet. It was yeah. together for like thirty something years. Right. Um, but even then, they made an effort to, outside of the the modern jazz quartet stuff, is that rain? Right? Sounds like it. That, it just wasn't in the forecast, I'm here to tell you. I didn't think it was supposed to rain either. Uh-uh, not for a week. You get some atmosphere. That's right. Um, but they, they, this is something, he viewed Weather Report as a a branded unit. Sure. Zavanel did. And it was basically Zavanel's band. Yeah, but they composed, they did songs by Shorter and songs by... Uh, Jocko songs. later on. And, yeah. And, yeah. Well, this is proof, though, There's that two when the report wasn't just Jocko. Yeah. You know, well, a lot of people associate that with it. But right. that's, that's people who come from, from a, rock, right. a rock world. Anybody who, who knows jazz knows Zavanel and Wayne Shorter um, from their yeah, time really with Miles. And um, who played drums on that record? Alphonse Muzan. Was it Alphonse Muzan? Yeah. Um, that's interesting because he is not a somebody you think of as a regular jazz kind of drummer, but some of that stuff really swings. Yeah. Um, so I, I love this record. I, I really do. I've, I've listened to this thing, and I went again. I, I went to Weather Report through Heavy Weather and, and Jocko, exactly, yeah. and I went backwards. And of course, then I realized how much I loved Alfonso Johnson as much as as Jocko. Yeah. But um, this record is a jazz record that was branching out with rock elements and starting to make it work a little bit. Yeah, right. And I think that's that's why this one's important. It, it's not just because of what it's, it is, it's because of what it signifies for what jazz it slash is, fusion yes. slash a big branch of rock and roll is going to be after. It is this. as much of an extrapolation of what Miles was trying to do electronically as any other band. Absolutely. It really was. Yeah. What's yours? Your uh, next pick my, here? my number two is "Every Picture Tells a Story" by Rod Stewart. Well, that's a good one. It's it's it still crackles, and it's yeah. it is one of the few hard rock acoustic albums. It's mainly acoustic instrumentation. There is a lot of electric guitar, and of course, that version of "I'm Losing You" is the faces. Oh gosh. Uh, the rest of the time, it's basically a band that he put together for the occasion. First of all, Mick Waller's drumming on this album. Uh, I've heard described as cataclysmic, and I can think of no more better adjective. It is, it is brilliant. It is Rod as a, at his top voice. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to find anything more heartfelt than that. Maggie May. Um, it is a, as much of a hard rock folk album as anything, but it rocks hard. I mean, it's got some serious power to it. From the, uh, the title track is one of. The, well, I'll put it this way: the title track was such a an adaptable song the Georgia Satellites used to cover it. Maggie May has been done by 
quite a few artists never as good as this here. It's it's one of those, that's one of those songs I'm not sure anybody else should try. It's deceptive, you know. You think you think of of Rod Stewart as having that kind of. Uh, I mean, it's a great voice, but it sounds like you could sing it until you try to until sing you it. try singing. Um, I know I'm losing you is on here, and this is uh, the best that's that is I'm like losing you anywhere. Oh, it's it's amazing, and it's again, it's the faces. Yeah, it is, and uh, it's the only thing I think the faces play on here. And it's apocalyptic, um, and it sounds like an old. Je- it sounds like one of the old Jeff Beck group uh, cuts. It, right. it could have. It would have felt been right at home on Beckola or. And Trill. I love Mandolin Wind on there. Yeah. Everything on there. It's, it's it had. A, you know, I had a song that was on my long list uh, of when we did our Dylan covers one because uh, they cover Tomorrow's a Tomorrow's Long Time. A long time. Yeah. Um, by the way, Rod did a great version of Only a Hobo that will make you fucking cry. Never heard that. It's it will make you cry. Um, Somebody but, else to, to cover him again. But this album, man, is one of those that, you know, in the early 70s, it was all over the radio. And um, I... This I really up, was AM Gold. Oh, I picked up yeah. a copy of it at a used record store, and it was in pretty good shape, and I wore it out. I mean, it was one of those that I just listened to over and over again. I'll tell you uh, rather quickly a cute story. I had two copies of it by accident. Gave my other copy to Richard Tate. That's what you told me. And <laughs> so I still have it. my vinyl copy of this. He wanted one. Um, it's it's yeah. It's got some. It, it is for and again, it's almost one of those blueprints for those uh, Americana bands like Wilco and sure and people like that. Yeah, it almost has that Adam's same kind of. It's it's sort of the British version of that. Yeah. Um, it's it, well the thing is, the thing I love about it is is the musicianship's high, but it's stripped. It, you know, it is just raw. Clean as hell. It is it, raw. It is yeah. not at all slick. Um, again, Mick Waller's drumming is well, and, Charlie and, Wattsian. And how good is Ronnie Wood on this album? I think Ronnie. I've said this before. Ronnie's Ron, such an Ron's one of those guys who is one of the greatest musicians of rock and roll. He really is. He, he is in. He everything. can do literally anything. Anything. Uh, when I, uh, I don't think I think it's the first show we've done since I saw the Stones. Oh yeah! How was your Stones experience? <laughs> it was great, as one would expect. My God, that man is seventy-seven years old. Mick Jagger. Yeah. Jesus Christ! I was winded getting to my seat. Okay. <laughs> um, and he's had heart surgery. But uh, yeah, he played. They uh, say you know Groucho Marx said you're only as old as the woman you feel. Well, Mick is about twenty-seven, from what I can tell. <laughs> but I've always um, opened it. But he been with Ron. But the thing with Mick and Keith. If you don't weigh but 103 pounds, your heart's not doing that. Yeah, there wasn't an ounce of body fat on those three guys. Um, But Ron played slide guitar a couple of times. Uh, Not slide guitar, steel guitar. Steel. Steel. He's a hell of a steel player. I think he's one of those guys that can probably just play anything. I think he is. And he, there was, there was, uh, the show was wonderful. Much love and respect to the rhythm section of of, uh, Daryl Jones and especially Steve Jordan. It was, it was, and it sounded different. Okay, I'm gonna tell you something, guys. Steve Jordan's more of a an R&B drummer, and Charlie was a jazz drummer. We talked about this before. Rock and R&B drummers play from the bottom up, and jazz guys play from the top down. It was more from the bottom up. It worked. Charlie was grinning somewhere. Okay, Steve played his ass off. That's awesome. But uh, but Ron Wood, Ron Wood was just chiming in at the perfect times. Um, he's always been a side man. I've got a couple of his albums that he did on his own. I've got I've got my own album to do and give me some neck. He did an album with Bo Diddley that just rocks <laughs> yeah. of all things. Yeah. But uh, but he is he is a, a key component to this record. Again, he's playing off Ron Wood's voice like he played off Jeff Beck's guitar. I mean, sure. Ron Wood's guitar like he played off Jeff Beck's guitar. Right. 
and it's which of course was the blueprint for Led Zeppelin, uh, the way Plant paid off Page. Except they didn't do it as good as Rod Stewart did it off either one of those guys. And um, there, there was uh, again, there's some you know, kind of old uh, Irish style instrumentation, mountain style music, but it, it's it is it is a record that you can listen to over and over again and still dig as long as you do it. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, if you guys want to talk, I was about just, this I was just going to say, you know, you've got uh, a guest appearance by Long John Baldry on the yep. title track there, who gave Rod his start. Yeah, Long yes, John his start. And I think that that's that. You know, when something like that happens, there's the moment at the last waltz where Ronnie Hawkins comes out, and you just see the band rising to the level of wanting to impress the guy he's, that really. He's still the boss. Okay, yeah. Ron, Ronnie, uh, Ronnie Hawkins when, is still the boss when exactly. he comes out there, and I yeah. think that that really brings. Uh, you know, even Robbie's kind of like. Shit. Yeah. Ronnie's so like, another thing too, uh, for anybody out there who isn't familiar with John Baldrick, not only gave Rod but Elton John. Yeah, gave him his both really gave him. So I think him so being there really character worth looking at. It elevates uh, that that track because you know that the whole time they're doing it, that Rod's like he's got that in his head that this guy's sitting here with him. It's interesting that Elton John was not on this record because Elton and Rod. It's almost surprising. Are, are longtime buddies. There's a great story in Rod Stewart's autobiography Not about good. for his birthday one year Rod bought him a Rembrandt I mean uh, Elton bought him a Rembrandt now Elton John's got more money than yeah. sure I think Paul McCartney has got more as far as musicians but Elton's, Elton's, filthy, Elton's filthy freaking rich yeah. right and he bought him like a Rembrandt it was an ink thing that Rembrandt had done and he gave it to him for his birthday and, and Rod was like it was incredible I, you know, this guy gave me a Rembrandt. Yeah. Then as his wedding gift, when he married Rachel Hunter, he got him a $10 gift certificate to their version of Walgreens. <laughs> oh. Does that say what he felt, thought about Rachel Hunter? I don't know. I think it was just that the nature no, I, of humor. Of I suspect that's Elton John's uh, backside sense of humor, of which he's got a good... Elton just felt like it was a bad idea to marry a woman. You know, real quick before we move to number one, a thing that strikes me every time we talk about, it, or anybody for that matter, it's not just us, anybody, talks about Ron Wood, you know, we talked to him as if he were still the replacement for Mick Taylor and Brian Johnson. Right. When Ronnie's now been with that band for forty fucking Ronnie's years, been, it's, it's his band too now. Yeah, it is, it is, it is, it is. And and it's it's when they took their bow, you know, for years they did it with the four of them because um, Daryl and and Steve are not members of the Rolling Stones. They're side they're, men. They're, they're side travel, and they do play on the album stuff. And they're very, you can tell they are so deeply respected by those guys. Sure, yeah. but it is Ron and and Keith. And Mick, and Mick, who takes the bow, yeah. the final bow. That makes sense. And, uh, and it should be. Ronnie has done nothing for a guy of his talent but serve that band and serve them well. He really has. Listen, years. I've told you before, my second favorite Stones album is Some, Some Girls. Girls. Yeah. No, no, Ron Wood's that. all over that record. Oh, yeah. Ron Wood makes that. There's no shattered without Ron Wood, even though he didn't write it. It comes out the way he did it. Because those those underlying burps of rhythm are all him, man. Yeah, too. it is. All right, Jeffrey. Speaking of, yeah, your next speaking record. of, and, and here's the thing, folks. I don't know what I can possibly say about this album that we haven't already said at some point on this. But my my number one album for 1971 is Sticky Fingers, a, uh, a worthy record. Not not only because, as Brent just said, it's a worthy record, but as Stone's albums go. This is pretty much the apex for me. This, as I told him before we did the show, if you ask me on a particular day, it could be this, could be Let It Bleed if I've been listening to that heavily, but either way you go, this album means that much to me. This, I played this thing to death in both vinyl 
cassette. I can't say I played a death CD for them because you can't play one to death, but you get the idea. And I don't know where I'd start other than saying my, my best version of the Stones. And this is not a knock, given the conversation we've just had here. Boy, this is going to sound like, well, watch him, he's being an ass now. <laughs> but my, my best version of the Stones is from this period before we go into the mid-70s. And with Mick Taylor doing, to me, what was basically the best work Mick did in his career. And Mick actually has work that's, that's, that's worth hearing away from this band. But this, this version of the Stones and this album, the songwriting here is taught. I mean, this is, this is where a lot of the, 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 the country uh, stylings that Keith really wanted to get into and Mick did on Let It Bleed, they come to full force with me and Dead Flowers right oh, here, which man, is what just a, such a fun well, but song. But this album's got, this album to me is, it's a blues record. Mm -hmm. And... Four of the songs on it are, are just make no bone. That's what they yes. are. And, and and that listen that period of the Stones with Mick Taylor to me was the best period. Mm -hmm. Okay, plan hands down, it really was. Um, and that's not a knock against again Ron Wood. Who, no, it is not. Who had his own contributions. No, but this is the albums like Sticky Fingers are the reason that people are still going to see the Stones today. Yeah. They didn't, you know, they didn't do anything from Sticky Fingers. No Dead Flowers. No Dead Flowers. Oh, you know, it's they, so they good don't live. do Brown Sugar right, right now. Well, no, they don't. Do uh, I thought maybe they'd pull off Bitch or even something like uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking. We but got that's two. such a Mick Taylor thing, you know. We got we got Can't You Hear Me Knocking and Dead Flowers and Dead Flowers. They it was a wonderful version. Wonderful. Well, and it's the it's the second uh, Mick Taylor album. It's the first uh, Brian Jones album. Yeah, or the first oh, album with without Brian Jones. Brian Jones album, right. Yeah. So it really is like it's like a transitional period, but in a way that's like causes them to really reach down. I think. Well, you don't oh, have yeah. can't like Brent just said, and, and this is obvious when you hear the song. You listen to "Can't You Hear Me Knocking." You don't have that if Mick Taylor's not in that band. No, they don't make that one. I don't think. I was really glad to see Mick Taylor was invited. He played with Big them at time. their 50th anniversary show. Yeah, that's because awesome. he's by God a part of some great. He's part of that band's DNA, out. man. He sure is. Um, it, what, but, what about the the album cover here? Oh, it's Warhol, it, it, that, and that's the thing. It is so representative of its time. It had a damn zipper on it. it. Yeah, who else was doing something like that? Warhol. <laughs> that's who did so, the album cover. You know, it was. It was. You put something on the album that damages the album mm -hmm. itself. Well, starting with um, Beggar's Banquet, the original cover, the Toilet Parade right, cover, yeah. the covers to those guys' albums was were pieces of art in and of them yeah. on, their own self. Uh, Sticky Fingers, to me, was it was very simple. It wasn't anything, yeah, but, it, that, that, but it was such an amazing statement for this band. Um, and it raised the ire of a lot of people who... The music probably didn't offend so much, but oh god, yeah, you know the the implication there was just too much for them. Well, uh, some people this, are apparently scared of penises. Yes, um, and, and that holds up to this day, especially down here. It's not Mick uh, Jagger's crotch, by the way. No, no, yeah, that was no, that was it, the rumor when when the album came out. Of course, it was Mick Jagger's and, crotch. And Warhol, I don't think he's ever told anybody who the model was. Yeah, yes, it, it, it's some guy who was a legitimate oh. model. For, okay, for all right. Game. Well, I mean, it just was. There was no. It wasn't. There wasn't any official. credit on the album. Yeah. No. But to me, this album really, this and Let It Bleed launched that that decade of the 70s where, okay, maybe the albums, a lot of people said critically, they were, but as a live act, 
the Stones were the shit. This was the top ticket to get. Well, Sticky Fingers is one of those albums that I see all the time listed as in those top albums of all time. And I, it should I, be. Um, it, it still has, and we hadn't even talked about Brown Sugar or Bitch, which are kind of no. considered the two real, you know. Sway is my favorite Stones deep cut of all time. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay, Monkey Man and Sway. Um, and uh, I was kind of disappointed they didn't do that because they have been known to play Sway. Um, and, and they did play, I, th- I think they did play some of the stuff at other shows. They didn't just keep a, a static set list. Right. You're but, saying they sometimes pull out wild horses or something. Well, it, they do a thing they did this time where you could actually vote for what ballad you wanted to hear. Oh, that's interesting. And and we got She's a Rainbow, which is not something I was really Did you? About. Really? I don't think yeah. they do that one very often. Wow. That was That was what Ron played steel guitar on. Huh. Steel I would have killed to have seen that done because that's to me that's such a departure. When you, it, when you go between the buttons aftermath all it when you look at Satanic Man is such a departure as a fucking album in the first place. You know, everybody's going through trying to do that psychedelic thing, Sgt. Pepper's all it. But that album itself to me is just so unusual and that song is not something you would commonly associate with them. You know, and no, I had somebody that didn't right. know shit about it at the time. I said, "No, that's the Rolling Stones." You know, it's, this has been many years ago. It's really. It's. I mean, it's great. It. it I would have rather heard Wild Horses or. I would have. Uh, I'd like to yeah, have heard that. Anything, but that's an I, unusual cut for them to do. They don't do it a lot, they, and I don't think it gets voted in that much. Um, well, I'll be honest with you. I think you were lucky to have gotten that. One. Oh, I, listen, I was lucky to have finally seen them after all these years of being a. Yeah, it you means know, something a stone, for sure. Oh God, a yeah. Stones fanatic. Because I promise you, I'll go ahead and tell you. Thirty, uh, well, actually, thirty-three years ago, mm-hmm. or thirty-two, it was really, really, it was the highlight of uh, of my fucking year on the show. Is I'm, I'm listen, man. I'm sitting here in front, and, and that tells you something that that was thirty-two years ago, and I'm sitting there, or thirty-three, actually, yeah, raving about the fact that I'm sitting in front of Mick, Keith, Bill. Well, you Charlie. had Bill and Charlie too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I. And it was a big deal then. It's a big deal now. Uh, and this album is one of the reasons why, to go back to it, that it's such a big deal. Like Matt said, this is Stone's album. This, this is big time. This is, this is one of those albums that, even if I don't listen to it a lot, I pull it out and I dig it. Even Moonlight Mile, you know? It, which I like. Um, which it, it was never a particular favorite, but I really, it's a great song. Um they don't do brown sugar anymore because of or sister morphine. Uh, it's 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 a brown sugar's got kind of a controversial lyric, and I have to give them credit for at least trying to. You know, a lot of people were like, "Well, why why are they so political?" Well, they're not. They're just well, they're receptive to the yes, the, what's going and, and, on. Uh, they always have been. Um, and and the girl that inspired it was Mick's girlfriend at the right. time, who was black. And she did an article that says, well, they ought to bring it back. Yeah, I don't know. Of course she Guys, does. I don't know if the Stones will tour after that. I think they got some European dates to do. Or right. To do. This may be the last I don't see run. them touring again. Not because they're old, because you could tell they were still in good shape. They like could you do said, this until they died, but that's... They could, and they may, to make But they money. don't have to. Well, and, and that's just it. Without Charlie there, as much as they respect Steve Jordan, uh, that's a component you're losing... Bill Wyman also played at that 50th uh, yeah. anniversary, so there was no ill will between those guys. Um, but I, I, I look for it to be that, and and 
yes. That's one of the first things I noticed, Jeff, was they didn't do anything off sticky fingers. Because mm. I'm sitting there, you know, they had two off of beggars and did um, two off of some girls, and they did three off of uh, Let It Bleed. And, um, you know, various other, some of the earlier stuff they did, they did Ruby Tuesday. Uh, um, we got painted the, black, which I go the rest of my life without hearing. To right. be honest, we got when the whip comes down off somewhere, which was fantastic too. Boy, oh, they really stretch song. that out. Hey, before we move on from this, how much do you think uh, recording and Muscle Shoals influences this album? Oh, a lot. Yeah, a lot. This is kind of, if I'm not mistaken, Thanks this was the, the first time that uh, uh, Dickinson kind of moved in and made his presence known. I think so. Yeah, and uh, I think this, I think it had a lot to do with it. I'll put it this way. The, uh... We don't often get UPS trucks, but occasionally we do. Not at 8.30 in yeah, the evening. that's unusual. Um, I think, uh, you know, they couldn't have recorded this album in France like they did Exile on Main Street. Okay? And I don't think they could have recorded it in England the way they did Let It Bleed. I think it, I, I Memphis say it, would have been the only other place. Memphis, there's before. a definite feel to this album yeah. that is a Memphis feel. I think. Yeah, that it. This is like you said. This is a blues album. It, 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 Mick, it amazingly enough, and not coincidentally, Mick Taylor is really, honestly, in the heart of it, he's a blues guitarist. That's oh, he, he is. He is. That's his. That's his. That's his. It's like Peter Green, and he, he is might a, have played in a rock and roll band, but he's a fucking blues player. Matthew, what you got for number one? So my number one. I want to preface this by saying that I've, we, I've talked before in this podcast about the the idea of of the cultural zeitgeist, which is the kind of, let's call it the spirit of the times. And this album, to me, captures the exact spirit of the times. And I'll ask you a question to, to start this off. Do you know who the first black person to win an Oscar for anything other than acting was? Uh, oh, well, you, we, I know what this album is, so right, I can't so you do say know. that. It is Isaac Hayes. Up until okay. 1971, when the album uh, that was the theme, the soundtrack to the to the movie Shaft, yeah. until that came out, no black person had ever even been nominated as a non-actor for an Oscar. Not a director, not a cinematographer, not really? a sound engineer or shit. And Isaac Hayes changes really? that. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. The, the, the Shaft movie... And the Shaft soundtrack were groundbreaking. Uh, when Shaft was released in the summer of 71, uh, it was the first double album of original studio material ever released by an R&B artist. It peaked at number one on the Billboard 200, not the Billboard R&B or the Billboard, you know, at the time they had still a Billboard black chart. Uh, this was the Billboard 200. It was number one, and it stayed on the chart for 60 weeks. I'm old enough to remember when this 16? was on the radio. Yeah. Theme all from Shaft the time. was yeah. ubiquitous. Now, there's only three vocal numbers on on the album. It's mostly, yeah. It is mostly instrumental. It's mostly done uh, at Stax Records in uh, Memphis. It was the the best selling LP that Stax ever did by a lot. Yeah, I, I was going to say it wasn't even close. It's yeah, and the theme "Do Your Thing" and Soulsville are the three that Isaac Hayes sings, and it propels Isaac Hayes as you know we talked about this before the black moses yeah and he took it seriously well i have to ask a question right sure, now because i don't know i it because believe me i'm familiar with isaac Hayes. who's the band for this the band for this is uh it's uh so essentially isaac was with it's, it's members of the barcade yeah okay, was, that's that 
It uh, was, and it, but it was. He pulled in some other studio guys. Well, see, I saw the Barcades, believe it or not, back in '81. Well, that's so, that's when they kind of morphed into an art, yeah, a funk band. They did. Um, yeah, but but in this case, you know, you've got. Um, it's uh, Lester Snell on electric piano, James Alexander's playing bass, Charles Pitts and Michael Tolls on guitars, Willie Hall on drums, and then you get some percussion, uh, congas, bongos, right. Gary Jones, and then which were pervasive on yeah. that, and then hor- a horn section. Um, but but really, with 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 the theme from Shaft, so to me it gets into the the, the movie Shaft and black exploitation which is essentially derived from the success of the movie shaft and you're going to get things like um superfly which yeah. is uh you know uh, curtis mayfield does the soundtrack for and it's great but you get some other kind of sillier dolomite uh, movies dolomite with rudy ray moore uh, which are worth seeing they're fun fans. sure oh absolutely blackula all kinds of like, you which, know, which was yeah yeah even I mean, richard Pryor's take on that was fantastic yeah there's there's nothing wrong with that but but all of that is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Shaft is not. Shaft was the first time he pulled, that a black man legit. was the bad, the big badass in the room. Richard Roundtree plays it perfectly, yep. directed by Gordon Parks, who is one of the, the American treasures, both his photography, his direction of, of films, and his presence as a human being. But the soundtrack is what drives it home. You know, who's the black <laughs> private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? Shaft. You're damn right, and it hits in the movie at this at the moment where he's, you know, this detective Richard Roundtree's character of John Shaft, dressed in, uh, you know, this leather overcoat, is walking down the streets of New York to get to, to work, and you know, cabs are pulling out and and, and having to stop for him because he doesn't take shit off anybody, and it was it was a, a cultural moment where a black man could think he was the strongest guy. The, the baddest, the baddest, the ass HMFI, yes, the the bad motherfucker. If you don't think that the career of Samuel L. Jackson owes its existence, oh, it does to the it, movie it Shaft and Richard Roundtree in it. Well, he actually played Shaft later on. Exactly, um, but well, but the music is to me the highlight of what R and B was in the early seventies. You can and get it, lost in that soundtrack. It really it's got does. some really great music. This is all making me want to go watch Cooley High. By the way, <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. Who is the man who would risk his neck for Brother Man? Shaft. Can you dig it? <laughs> you know, they said that cat Shaft is a bad mother. But I'm just talking about Shaft. Yeah, I mean, This it's, is what white guys do when we talk about Shaft, yeah. okay? It's, now, my introduction to Shaft uh, was that, that you know, I'm a, a southern white kid, and, and most of my adolescence was the 80s into the early 90s. Well, at some point, my dad told me and my buddy Scott Novelet that when he was stationed in Vietnam, there were only two places at Cameron Bay Air Force Base that were air-conditioned. And it was the movie theater, and it was the library. So he watched a lot of movies, and he read a lot of books. (laughs) And one of the movies that he said they showed that year was Shaft. And so we thought, that sounds hilarious. Shaft, he's a, a black private dick. What doesn't sound funny about that? So we rented this movie from, this was at the time where VHS stores were still in existence. You could go down to a hole in the wall that was usually next door to your uh, grocery store and rent a a movie. We must have rented two movies over the course of the next two or three years. We rented them, we'd return one and rent the other one. And it was The Last Waltz and Shaft. And we loved it. Like, we identified 
with this 70, 1971 black exploitation film for whatever reason. And it just was something that, that spoke to, to us. Uh, and for whatever reason, it maintained it. I used to have, when I, when I first moved out of my parents' house, in my first room that I could call my own, there were a couple of posters on the wall. I had a poster of Dexter Blows Hot and Cold. Uh, I had the, the uh, album cover of uh, Blue Train by John Coltrane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had a movie poster from Shaft. And this, th- you know, that was what I thought was the definition of cool. It was. It, it still is. It really is. It, I'm sorry. It, it's, And you know, Isaac Hayes, who... People don't realize just how important he was to that stacks machine. It was him. He um, was in all of it. He he was right in the middle of all of it. And of course, he later became a literal cartoon character. Right, yes, chef. Yeah. Um, but I remember him being inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame <coughs> and doing Shaft. Right. And he wasn't playing. He was dancing around with the band mm-hmm. and doing. And he was grinning from here to here. Because he won, okay. Yeah. This Isaac Hayes is one of those guys who probably doesn't get mentioned a lot. He's the Black Leon Russell. He really is. Okay. He, he he's he's he was he's had his fingerprints on a lot. This album. I'm gonna tell you something. This album is not a typical album in that it's a soundtrack and it's got instrumental music, mostly instrumental sure. music. But it's still it's very immersive. And, oh yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, you you go back and listen to some of the tracks that aren't the ones that you know. There's a. It really it starts with a theme and then it goes into a song called "Bumpy's Lament," which is about this uh, yep. this pimp Character whose lead. daughter has been kidnapped, and it, and it's it's so soulful. And then it goes into this walk from Reggio's, which is the cafe slash bar they go to, and it's so like. It's it's got jazz, it's got soul, it's got R and B, and it just combines it all. Listen to his other records later on, where they were traditional albums of him doing songs, right? But even when he did stuff like by the, you know he did by the time I get to feeling Phoenix, <laughs> which is not something yeah, you I think don't of him doing that. Isaac oh, Hayes covers Glenn Campbell. It's amazing. It's it because and, and a lot of that stuff he stretched again. He viewed it initially like a lot of people at the time as a very functional thing it was dance music, right? So a lot of his stuff was instrumental passages, but because he was such a pure musician, there weren't. It wasn't just showboating. It wasn't just something to take up space. It was. It was like jazz in that it had a real focus to it. It had a real musical worth to it. Yeah, and he could. You know, he could do anything. Like his first big success was co-writing Soul Man. I mean, this guy had been around R and B for years. He could do it all. He wrote a lot of Sam and Dave. Stuff. Wrote a lot of the Sam and Dave. He stuff. Sure did. And 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 he really with with theme when theme from Shaft and the Shaft soundtrack, he emerges onto the scene as kind of the leader of the new school of R and B, the school yeah. that incorporates jazz elements and funk elements, and just is going to bring it all together and present it to you unapologetically, and it just. You know, you can tell I'm, I'm gushing. There was no question in my mind when we looked at albums from 1971 that this was going to be the top of my list. Really? It, it just, it, it is it is one of my favorite albums. Uh, and, and I know it's, it shouldn't be, kind of, you know? It's, yeah. it's got a lot of childhood memories attached to it. Well, it, 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 but it's more than that. It's like, it's I go back and I don't feel just nostalgic. I mean, there's some of that. But it's just damn good music. This al- this album still holds up. I, I I've got a copy of it that uh, 
I used to play a lot, and it was kind of one of those things. It was it was one of my best uh, albums to play while I'm writing something. You know, it was one of those that I always put on because I don't like to listen to a lot of vocals when I'm writing. I don't want it to, you know, yeah. unduly influence. This edges out. Uh, Black Moses also came out in 71 but because I'd already mentioned it on our double albums uh, and, and really Black Moses came out in 71 it did it came out in November of 71 yeah, probably was was, yeah. late 71 but you know it just oh god you go back and listen to the theme from Shaft and tell me it's not iconic oh it, it I'll give it another listen it, it is I mean I it's, it's not just iconic though it's still it's still got some relevance it's still a vibrant piece of music you know, it's not just that it's iconic. It is. But it works on a lot of different levels. Right. Um, what's your, what's your well, number well, one? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Isaac Hayes because uh, my number one record, or at least the one that was not a part of the uh, the ones that are in our upper tier, and that's There's a Riot Going On by Sly and the Family Stone. And when uh, Grill Marcus wrote about it in uh, Mystery Train, he referred to this album as Muzak with its finger on the trigger, which is exactly what it is. It's not a fun listen, and we talk a lot about how other albums breathe, and certain albums just breathe. This one smothers you. It's it's just this wall of sound, and it, it's like the the impression that you get is Sly was trying to give us an idea of what it's like to be black in America at that time. It's oppressively pessimistic. It's it you are dealing with the pressure the entire time you listen to this record, even when the hooks come on. Right. Um, and the only hit off of this was uh, Family Affair, which is a just a you know, it's a downer of a song. It, it's the whole album is slow and lugubrious, even when it's fun. It's very funky. Yeah, and of course, you know, originally that this was going to be titled, and conceptually it was going to be titled after the track Africa Talks to You. Yes. And they changed it because of the Marvin Gaye album. Because that Marvin Gaye album asks the question, what's going on? Yeah. And this is the fucking answer that, that Sly gives. There's this, a riot is, going on. This is, this is Sly laying it down for you without any hope at all. I mean, this is this is a relentlessly it's not a hopeful album. <laughs> it's a relentlessly dark album. It's very effective. I don't see how anybody could listen to it like obsessively. It's like Bone Machine by Tom Waits. If you listen to it like thirty six hours straight, you're going to go out of your goddamn mind. But it's even the funky stuff. And make no mistake, Larry Graham is all over this record. And so it's by definition funky. But there is no let up to. The feelings of pressure, uh, the feelings of of being trapped, almost, as you'll find from it. And because of that, it's kind of hard to say, well, this album, you, everyone should listen to it. I don't know if it's one that should be listened to often. But it's and, also, it's got, got great musicians on it. Billy Preston's, uh, yeah, we come back to Billy Preston again. He's, he's on this well, album. It does, Ike Turner's playing it, guitar it on it. It does, but it's basically Sly. It is. It's and Sly's Larry, album. And Larry, and Larry Larry Graham. Graham. Yeah. It's basically Sly. He overdubbed a lot of stuff. So this does not have kind of that communal feel <coughs> that Stand or uh, Hot Fun in the Summertime has. It's not fun. It's not something that has that family vibe to it. Even though he later recorded some of the Family Stone on it, the core of the album is Sly and Larry. And it's, it is, it's kind of hard to recommend it as a something you'd want to listen to but hey you Maybe should something you should 
and it's also it's relentlessly funky. I mean, it it, it really does not oh, lay yeah. up on that, and you can take it for that. Um, but it's it in its own way is a very scary and dark record. Well, that's been uh, in a lot of our albums tonight that we've chosen. Uh, that theme, as I said, I, I I had Surf's Up Beach Boys, which is not a happy record. God, no Sticky Fingers isn't. I mean, when you wind up at the backside with you know Sister Morphine on there, it speaks volumes. Well, we've talked about how this is rock and roll's adolescence. Yeah. And what happens in adolescence? You realize you start to come to grips with some of the darker things in life. You know that that's not all love and happiness. Well, it's that time and, when you start hating your parents, right? Yeah. And and it, it it's I mean it's that thing where you start to realize this at a very a very real level and Sly is kind of realizing and I've heard some people call this as kind of a a reaction to the the summer of love it was way after that I don't think it was simply that um, but it no was, but it, it was, was a much, reaction to the 60s I'm sure it was it was a reaction to of and he was a part of that Hyde Ashbury that yeah that had time. a lot of hope and they and went into it with a lot of of, of, of big ideas and big plans and he kind of saw it all drawn to tatters and he realizes at the end of all that He's still a black dude in America, and you yeah. can bring off all the fake braggadocio you want, and you can talk about love and happiness and kumbaya, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> he still has to deal with the fact that he is a part of um, a culture and a demographic that is still being very much put upon. Oh, yeah, and, 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 and keep in mind, this, is, this is something you can say about all the albums we've talked about. They're all kind of a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. Let it, ble- uh, not let it bleed. I'm sorry. Uh, who's next? And well, we haven't gone to who's next yet. But um, we talked about uh, we talked about sticky fingers. Sticky fingers. So. This is all a reaction to we were all, you know after this, we'd gone through Altamont. We'd seen yep. a lot of the heroes of the time shot, Martin Luther King and, and Robert Kennedy. I was thinking of that earlier. Uh, before we were seeing a deeper involvement in Vietnam when we thought we were getting out. Nixon was in the White House. Uh, it was kind of all of these albums are almost a, a reaction to that. And they all react in different ways, which is kind of a beautiful part of all of them. And I think that that's, to me, the, the thing when you go back and listen to this album is it's it may not be fun. It's not as uplifting as a lot of other funk albums are. You know, a lot of no. the topical material of funk. And, and I'll say, I think a lot of funk derives from this album. But the topical material of funk isn't this serious. What this album is is relentlessly honest. Um, it is It is experiential. Uh, as much as anything else. You go back and listen to it, and you're going to experience, like we said, the oppressiveness of being a black man uh, wishing things were not as they are in 1971. Sly is not sugarcoating any goddamn thing. <laughs> not at all. Um, well, and a lot and before of he kind of done be, that. And, and, and it's not unusual for... Uh, I mean, a lot of people, when they think of funk, they think of, uh, well, a lot of times something you can groove to, but funk can be a menacing platform at times. It has that element in the way it uses the beat and, and that serves very well. It depends on, I mean, it depends on who's doing it. Yeah. In, in 2003 Rolling Stone did that 500 greatest albums of all time and they ranked Riot uh, number 99 and what they said then was that uh, Sly and the Family Stone created a musical utopia an interracial, an interracial group of men and women who blended funk rock and positive vibes Sly Stone ultimately discovered his utopia had a ghetto, and he brilliantly tore the whole thing down on "There's a Riot Going On." Damn. I think that's that's that who wrote pretty that? much says it. Who, who wrote that? Um, it doesn't say who who wrote that. It was the 
the 2003 Rolling Stones uh, 500 greatest albums of all time. Well, it's it's definitely one like like Jeff said. You should listen to it, even if it's not. And and you know, it's one of those things that will draw you back in. Uh, you look at a movie like we were talking about Goodfellas a minute ago. It's not really a happy time movie. No. It's 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 got a real harshness to it. Um, there's still something entertaining about it, yeah. but it's not one. I'll put it this way: it's not one that um, it's not one to get you going in the morning. You know. No, but I think that's deliberate. I think this is this album is meant as an answer to Marvin Gaye and to a lesser extent James Brown. Well, it is. It's meant to to contrast those and say that yeah, like these guys are out there, you know, being hopeful and 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 funking it up. But remember that it's a it's a fucked up time for the black well, and, man. And listen, Sly came from the ghetto. Okay, he and knew what Sly, it was all about. Sly was not, and he always kind of alluded to that. Even stuff like Stand. And even in Hot Fun in the Summertime, it kind of alludes more to a street party atmosphere right. than, you know, going to the beach and, and, and roasting weeds. So it, it's it's one of those records that um, when I got it, first time I got it because it was one I felt like, okay, it's sly, it's considered a great record, I like Family Affair, I want to listen to the rest of it. And when I first heard it, I got through with it and I was like, shit. It, this is this is depressing, right? And and it part the music echoes it perfectly. The, like I say, the music is oppressive in its own way. Yeah. So there's the ones we've chosen. This was, this was by the way the one this time that there's always one that one of you guys comes up with, and I think, damn it, that's so good it should have been mine. It's well, it's it's one of those that I, like I said, we've got five records in our top tier this time, which I think is the most we've ever tied on. Right. With the three of us. Um, which tells you just how many good albums they there are, um, and this is one I was a little surprised one of you guys did not choose it. It's on my alternate list. I just should have ranked it higher. Well, but then again, it's one of those guys. How can you? Because there's all so much good stuff, right? And it may not be hidden into your wheelhouse. Um, and let's let's go over the five that we uh, we chose together. Uh, the the one that Jeff and I chose. Um, I don't think you chose this one. Um, is kind of a a rock geek. Touchstone, and that's Maggot Brain by Funkadelic. And let's start with the obvious, the title track, yeah. which is basically <coughs> a, spoken word, a spoken word intro um, that's ominous. Yeah, Mother is. Earth is pregnant for the third time. And, and it goes into this uh, solo guitar exploration by Eddie Hazel. It's like 11 minutes long, I think. Yes, it is. Um, and the story, there's terrible stories about this. First of all, there apparently is backing tracks to this that he just took out and left it as a single 10-minute guitar. And this is opening the fucking album. This is the first yeah, no, that's, yeah, this song is, yeah. on here. It sets the, the, uh, the kind of uh, aural landscape that you're going to be emerging into, which is desolate as fuck. Yes. Well, I have tasted the maggots. In the yep. And, and, and the story goes that he told Eddie Hazel before he recorded it, that his mom had died. Yeah, yeah, play like you, yeah. And it all comes out, and it is, it is like ten minutes of solid uh, catharsis. And it's, you know, Eddie Hazel was the guitar player. It gets compared a lot to Hendrix because it's kind of spacey in parts and it's got a lot of <laughs> echo and stuff. Eddie but, found his bottom here. Well, it is, it is as much, uh, <laughs> you know, a piece of instrumental brilliance as rock and roll's ever known. Yeah, and that is one of the greatest solos of all time on any instrument. 
Just I agree. Just bar none. I agree. I mean, it, it ranks up there, right up there with, uh, hell, I don't know, Love Supreme. Um, oh, they right. would later select a, an actual guitar player in Michael Hampton, based on his ability to sound like Eddie to Hazen. do that particular yeah. number. And he did it well. Oh yeah, Hampton's he did do player. it well. Um, yeah. He he this and and again, would this have been the greatest album or on our list? <coughs> if not for that solo, probably not. No, no it's, it's because it's just so epical. It's the thing that, but, that that tells you where you're going. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, the the uh, north star of this album. Well, it it's funny though because the albums that uh, the whole album's got quality stuff all through it. Um, yeah, no, there's there's but, great tunes on this. But, yeah, they really are, and it's not. But great. that's the centerpiece. Again, the, the production is very raw. It's it sounds like it was recorded ten years before yeah. it was. Um, but this track <coughs> and the last track, Wars of Armageddon, which is also an instrumental, it's almost like a, we would now consider it almost a dub kind of thing. It's that stark and that scary, kind of bookend. Some pretty relentlessly upbeat, you and your folks, me and my folks, super stupid. Can you get to that uh, stuff like that? Which are, are are great songs in and of themselves, and without Maggot Brain, uh, this would have been a great funkadelic album. Now yeah. that said, funkadelic was at that point especially kind of a an acquired taste, and this is before uh, Clinton kind of moved off into uh, uh, the Parliament yeah, stuff exactly. and, and had his, his big... Yeah, this is less kind the, of... They the became f- the Black Kiss right. at some point. I this, felt like this, this is an actual fusion of rock and roll and, I guess you could say, soul, rhythm, and blues. There there are elements of all three in every bit of this. I was going to say, it's funny that you brought up that kind of dub of the last track, because when I went... I, I, I had heard, listened to Maggot Brain, the track before, but never really deep given a deep dive to the album and when I hit it and I hit that last track I thought man these guys listened to King Tubby and that oh, kind yeah. of uh, this was, this was dub a, had a real, real open, deep dub and they got the, the uh, yeah. right and they got how menacing that could be without sounding downer and that's a hard kind of a uh, wave to ride and I think it kind of ties in with what we we're talking about Sly you know kind of it speaks to the prevailing um, kind of mood of the of the time. It was. It really was. It was. Those two albums, the the, the opening track and the last track, would have fit fine on right going. On. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, however, things like uh, again, you and your folks, me and my folks, <laughs> right? Hit it which is it. just a gospel rave up, man. Yeah. And it's got it's over processed. Super stupid. The super stupid. Lead off for the second track. But you second here's the thing that strikes you about it. The. the uh, and, and, and for modern parlance, for somebody that, you know, one of our listeners who might actually sit there and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, especially a younger person, which there might be about three, but one of them that says, you know, I don't get what you're saying. What, 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 what I would tell you is this, the lines were a lot more blurred between these musical genres coming out yeah. of the late 60s and 70s. They, well, they were starting to be. They were starting to be. They were, yes, they they were, were. kind of merging. Um, you you could really you could get bands that that could marry funk and rock 
and and it wasn't such a strange thing. It was good to hear. I mean, a lot of highly listenable stuff come out of By this By the way, era. Mavis did a great version of Can You Get to That. Really? Oh, oh, yeah. Not the last album, yeah. the album before that. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a lot of it. Some of the, the, what, Can You Get to, It's rooted in the doo-wop stuff that the parliaments started out doing, yeah. that George Clinton started doing as a, as a, uh, as a doo-wop band. Yeah, it's got a little bit of that kind of throwback, but in a way that, like, you know, is setting up that kind of cultural relevancy that we're talking about. It, it's it's it is again. I remember mentioning Mad this fun. album to somebody one time. The album title, and they were like, "What? Yeah, maggot brain." But it, it fit. this is another one where the covers, great. yeah, it's insane. Yeah, it's mm. you know, it's funny. Uh, Steve White and Steve Lowe and I, um, which is who does our theme show, mm. or our theme songs. I mean. Uh, for this and Shell Shock Nation, um, and that's from an album we did called Chronic Shinola Sessions. And there's a song on there called Hip Hypnophobia at the very end of it. And I remember listening to it and saying to one of the guys who played on, I said, "Man, that's a pretty good uh, imitation of Wars of Armageddon off Maggot Brain." And they looked at me and said, "That again? What?" <laughs> and I had to sit down and listen to him, and and he's like. Man, there's nothing like that. That yeah. is, it, those two songs again. Wars of Armageddon is the final track on there, and it's a full instrumental. And that's uh, Tal Ross, uh, rather than Eddie Hazel. Yeah. Well, there were several. Those are the two main guitarists. <coughs> on there. Yeah. Um, uh, who was the other guy that played with him? Um, At that Glenn time. Goins, uh, Glenn Goins. Was that his name? Uh, uh, on guitar. Or on I don't think he played on that record. Yeah, because it was that was Eddie Hazel and Tal Ross on guitar. Fuzzy then, uh, was on Bernie Worrell on keyboards yes, of course. and Billy Nelson on bass. Tiki Fullwood on drums. I refer to say the great Bernie Worrell. The great Bernie Worrell. Um, yeah. And it's it's one of those that that trial track is is one of those that once you listen to it, you will want to go back and listen to it periodically. It's just that it, got that kind of. It a is really cool good. To it. It's yeah. It's, there's a, a live version that still exists on. Uh, uh, you, well, you can find it on YouTube from. Uh, uh, show in 78 even that's just oh, phenomenal with Mike Hampton doing it yeah because Eddie Hazel I think Eddie Hazel had passed by that yeah time. he had um, but this is from 1978 and it's in Houston and it's uh, it's worth your time it is uh, Hampton comes out and he just plays it yep just and it you know what's amazing too is he plays the whole thing almost you know he doesn't flash it out no he doesn't put a lot of chops into it he just lets each note breathe, and each note brings something. And even then, in a concert atmosphere where it's kind of, you know, party, 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 it is. What's well, an attention drawer? It it's settles breathtaking. Yeah. It is. Eddie Hazel died in '92 okay. at the age of 42. He was already sick. Then. And yeah. Maggot Brain was played at his funeral. Yes, yeah. I, I did know that that he had, that they played at his funeral. And yeah, he's been sick. For oh, years. you can play he that at my out funeral. Of, uh, out of the band for yeah, a twelve years. Some, there's some real years. liver problems. They played, there. and of course later on when he expanded into the whole P funk thing, yeah, he had, you know, like twelve musicians on stage, right? Um, and all dressed in spangles and God well, knows it, what. I, I referred to a minute ago as Parliament was the Black Kiss. Sure. Well, Funkadelic. If guys, if you look at, they did a, a video, an early video for a song they did called Cosmic Slop, and you've got Eddie, ha or was it Eddie Hazel in his diaper? 
You know, that's what he... he and, and all these guys, Man. a couple of these guys were in war paint, and they were all in these wild costumes. Um, and it was a multiracial band. Um, was that 76, 75? Uh, I think it was a little before that. But was it? Was, it? it uh, no, Cosmic Slop, I think, was a little before that. I may be wrong. Look up Cosmic Slop uh, there, if you would, Matthew. Um, but, yeah, this is one that is probably the... I would think it may be one of the lesser-known records that we've talked about, certainly the lesser-known rock records, unless Most you're likely. a big rock Cosmic musical. Slop was July of 73. Okay, I was 73. thinking it was not long after that. Um, if, you're not, if you've not dug into the Funkadelic stuff, it's not Parliament, okay? It's, right. not, it's not Dr. Funkenstein. Yeah, no, but it's still... But it's really something good. you should check out. It's, it's something... And again, the recording is kind of... Uh, it's 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 I don't want to say it's lo-fi, but it's not crisp. But even then, it kind of has that atmosphere to it. Well, it's it, 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 so much emphasis is placed on the bass and drums on those records too, man. I mean. Oh, and it's it's like I say, it, the two bookends make it the great album. Yeah. But you guys have talked uh, and I've always talked about how you judge a great album by its filler. The filler on this is some good shit. Yeah, it really is. The, other, uh, the next one we did, and you two agreed on this, you two put Madman Across the Water on your uh, on your list and, and matched up. Um, I had it on my deeper alternate list. It's never been a personal, well, I shouldn't say it's never been a personal favorite because I did like it a lot. Um, but I didn't think of it in those terms as much as you guys did. What, what, to me, it's the maturation, basically, of John as a songwriter. Okay. And, and Topin, too. Right here... Their abilities to write the songs, or, to, or basically Elton to write the music and to structure the songs around the stuff that he and Topin had written, that really comes alive right here. This is where it happens, not to mention the fact it's got uh, two songs that God and everybody knows, and then a personal favorite like Razor Face on it on mine. I, that, this was an album I listened to a lot. Razor Face is one of my favorite albums. Yeah. yeah. I think it's easy to, to look at this one because, you know, nineteen uh, seventy is Tumbleweed Connection, yeah. which has this kind of western theme throughout. Almost a novelty track or two on that. Yeah, and too. I think that's what keeps what, what makes Mad Man the one that I always go back to is that it, all the songs strike me as being very true to the musicians that are recording them. Whereas I feel like with Tumbleweed, it's a little bit like, you know, there's a little kind of come on, guys, look at this, come on, look, check not on this one. one. You're right, no, and you know what? The title track on that is as, as threatening as anything is. we it talked really about here it, in its own way. Um, it's been speculated, it, and, and, and Topin has said, no, that's not the case. It would have been fucking brilliant if we had that. It's been speculated, or it was for a while, that this was about Nixon being the madman across the water, which he said, no, this is just and, not the case. And I, you know what? I've sort of grown up that with gospel my whole life, yeah. but it wasn't. Yeah, he um, come out and said, no, it... And, and then said, this would have been wonderful if we'd done it, been brilliant, but no, we didn't. But it, this, the, the, the song itself, you're right, it, it's, it's, again, it's another one of those warnings. It, uh, it's, you know, what's funny is that, is that the, that track was supposed to be on Tumbleweed. Oh, was it that, really? But they, they had composed it back then and then felt like it didn't really thematically it fit. It didn't. 
It did uh, not. Which, which is weird because it's like it seems like it's so in tune with the other tracks on that album. And to me, this is is one of the great single sides of an album. The yeah. the A side of this album. That you'd be hard pressed to find a weak cut on it. Tiny Dancer, Levon, Razorface, and Madman. That's yeah. There's that's no, there is no weak one. cut on this. Now side. the side two is is much more forgettable. But but if I you're listening for it, well, I'm so saying you know in, in terms in relate, of relate, relatively major. because this is another one like we talked earlier about how uh, uh, Stairway hit and then stayed a hit. Yeah, Tiny Dancer wasn't an immediate hit. In no. fact, Tiny Dancer was kind of a little known AM staple for a few years, and then it was forgotten. Late seventies before until, it became a two. Well, it 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 became after almost famous right yeah it was it, like it, it a was a late key, 90s yeah. early 2000s and, and, and everybody started listening to it going god damn that's a great song it re- yeah. and it really is um and of course there was a wkrp reference oh yeah yeah, yeah. Me closer tiny dancer yes. oh the uh Not russian the, god is my yeah. witness i thought turkeys Turkey could fly. fly yes that's right we we, we need more wkrp references <laughs> you can't get enough you can't yeah. get enough but it, it it's um yeah, it's almost famous. Kind of turned that song into the iconic piece. It it kind of is looked at now, and it's basically you know, it's this groupie on the road. You know, it's it's not a real pretty. It no, takes it's not a happy moment either. He takes it kind. Of, well, he turns it into it though. Yeah. You know, he, he he said, "Look, this is not great, but it's what we got right well, now." Well, I think you know, and, and that means a lot. You, you know? can find <laughs> beauty in it, even though it's not. Good, no. <laughs> like it's well, not. Yeah, it's a happy story, but it is a. I wouldn't say story. it's a sad story. Yeah, it's just kind it's just of a, a moment. It's, it's just, just a moment, and you in know it, what he's describing, and so. in it, you kind of find something that that keeps you alive, that that gives you an agency. Yeah, you know, keeps moving you on. Our last three were ones that we all three agreed on, and there's no surprise in any of them. The first one, in kind of keeping with our theme. And I'm not going to. These are not in order because any of these could be considered the best, as far as I'm concerned. Is uh, what's going on by Marvin Gaye, or as I call it, uh, James Jamerson's shining moment. Um, It's funny. I listened to this one. That's not unusual. I listen to this album a lot, and every time I listen to this, I hear something else in that instrumental that that I didn't hear before in the instrumental part of it. But this was an album of him basically saying the same thing Sly was saying. But he's a little more optimistic on it. But he's still... And it's Marvin's fucking voice. Oh, God. He's still finding stuff in this... The title track is one of the great singles of all time. Oh, yeah. And he's looking around at what he's got, (coughs) and he's basically saying, okay, what are we doing here? And it's not just... This is not a black people album for lack of a better word this is not something you know Sly wanted you to know what it's like being black Marvin wanted you to know that being black was a very human thing sure and this was something that they were having to deal with and it starts off with that kind of party scene with uh, you know several of the Detroit Lions who actually won games at that point Um, not many but they did they did win and uh, they're going through this and it starts off uh, you know with, with the sacks going on there and of course Jamerson's epical bass line and it's and, and I will tell you this, of all the albums we've talked about, this may be one where the filler is not quite to the level of it is in some of them, but the three songs on there, Inner City Blues, What's yeah. Going On, and uh, uh, Mercy, Mercy Me, are so 
fucking break. And they take up a lot of the record. Most of these, keep in mind, most of these, most of it, yeah, God. most of these records are only about thirty to thirty-five minutes yeah. long. And so, because inner the, city's he, a, a, but a, even, a lengthy too. But but that's just it though. Even the interludes in this that we would normally, if you took it as a, a piece of music in and of itself, as just kind of a, uh, you know, sort of a, a light or, or or just it. I think it it's perfectly. That way. It, it's it is. That. It perfectly bridges one song to the next yeah. in a way that's powerful and meaningful. Yeah. And I, I think it's that's, not so much filler as much as it's uh, like a bridge, like you said, transitory yes. sort of thing. And it works. It yeah, works it because if you listen to these three singles on their own, it's like, wow, that's great. But if you listen to this album from beginning to end, it's it's holy shit. You know, yeah, this, there's there's some movement, and and it's it's not just. Because I think we're, when you're talking about the, the, the singles, um, you're looking at individual moments. Whereas when you listen to the album, what you get is something that's building to that moment. Yes, yes. Uh, which makes it all the more impactful. Now, if you listen to that transition or that kind of interstitial material by itself, it kind of feels... It sounds like it's disposable pop. Right, not but it's bad, not in Not context. bad, not bad. It's good stuff. It right. really is because... No, but it's because it's the Motown the music machine. But I think yes, the other does, thing is that, is that to me, <coughs> this album, you're looking at, at Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On" is to R and B what Miles Davis's "Kind of Blue" had been to jazz. Oh yeah, it's the so. moment that you yes. could say this is the core element of what this music is about and what it means. And it was uh, people don't realize it was a, a departure from what Marvin had done. Still, oh, yeah. Not just Marvin, but Motown. Motown, yes. Because other this people... This is the first record that had the Motown musicians credited on it. Right. Other people had been doing kind of what you'd call very personal albums in other genres and in yeah. other labels. This was the first time it happened at Motown. Well, Motown was basically at that point a... You know, it was a... It was a uh, an assembly line production. Yeah, it was a hit machine. Maker. And it was brilliant. Don't sure. get me wrong. There was brilliance to that stuff. But it also brought in some of Stevie Wonder's uh, heavier stuff. Uh, remember those psychedelic temptation sides? Oh, yeah. Uh, psychedelic Shack and uh, uh, Cloud Nine and, and, and uh, Ball of Confusion and stuff like that. And Marvin brought something to the table that he had not brought previously. You kind of saw what was torturing Marvin a little bit, you know? Yeah. And this is also, if I'm not mistaken, and I may be wrong, you might want to check me on this, I think this was his return after an absence after Tammy Terrell had uh, collapsed in his arms and died. Yeah, because they'd released that, you know, that like, uh, they'd released the Super Hits album and the Marvin Gaye and Ter Tammy Terrell's Greatest Hits album in 70, but but like Easy had been a year before that. Yeah, and he didn't he didn't come in and say, okay, uh, Barry, tell me what to, Barry Gordy, tell me what to do. Let's make another. No, hit this out. was him. Directing this was a things. personal. No, he had this, this. was an artistic statement. He had this formed. When he <laughs> he went sure into did. Studio. And it it sounds like you know you you don't have to know this stuff to enjoy it, no. but it brings no. out a little bit more of what the album actually meant to not just what was. No pun intended. What was going on at the time, right? But what would what would be to come, and it as much as uh, right going on, or Shaft, or any of that stuff brought a certain or a maggot brain brought a certain. Um, I don't want to say gravitas because that makes it sound kind of leaden, but it it brought a certain depth 
of personal experience to it. The early Motown stuff, they were relatable to everybody. Sure. Well, um, a song like My Girl or some something sure. like that, you know, it's, it's, so it's not a question together. whether it's a great song. They we're are. talking about stuff that appeals to everybody. Whereas in this case, you know, Marvin Gaye was, was, had been deep in conversations with, uh, with uh, Obi Benson. Yeah. Yes. Who had witnessed yes. a, a, an act of police brutality, mm-hmm. a horrific act of police brutality, and they were saying, you know, like, how can we sing about, like, I, I love my girl when, when this when shit's going, going on? on. And it, keep, I want to say something, too. MC5 at this time, who were big in, in Detroit, big obviously Motor City 5, um, had re- started recording this real politically charged albums from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And they did a version of, of, uh, of uh, Detroit is Burning. And that kind of stuff had an influence on what was going on at the Motown Brain Trust at that time. And, uh, well, I shouldn't say the Motown Brain Trust, but the Motown artists. Right. And, you know, Smokey, as brilliant as he is, could not have come up with this record. And he has hand in a lot of it. Oh, yeah. Stevie Wonder... As brilliant as his later stuff was, he was not prepared to make this jump. No. It would be another year before Stevie. Those guys really get get quote unquote political because of this. Yes. Well, here's here's my thing on this, and and these are the two points I would. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. To me, this album, it, it isn't just the 1970s. This is one of the top 20 albums ever made. In my opinion, in 2020, when Rolling Stone revised their top 500 albums, of this all was time. number one, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, well, to me, yeah, this is this is the, at that level. Number two, when we were talking about Motown here, uh, Motown had a roster of very talented vocalists. Yeah, um, I mean, of which Marvin was one. Other guys like well, you, you yeah. mentioned Smokey, and then Sam you know Cook we had guys like or, Wilson Pickett, and even uh, you know Otis. Guys like the thing here is nobody was. As you said, nobody of these other artists wouldn't have made this or couldn't have made this. Marvin had an emotional depth to his singing that none of the others could ever do. No, you're absolutely right. There's something about his voice that brings this out. Yep. And it's really funny because Marvin, for most of his career, he wanted to be Nat King Cole. Right. He did I'm not want to make R&B harder. records. Yeah. He really, this was not something he aspired to do his whole career and make, make these political records. And he did a couple of other ones. And and the rest of them he did were more personal. Here, my dear, yeah. and let's get it on Trouble and stuff man, like that. Trouble man. Up to this one. Yeah, um, they were not as charged as this one, but Marvin felt like he had to say this at the time. And Marvin was pushing immense consciousness as far as himself and in, in, in that community and being a human being. And not for nothing, the Funk Brothers, which is the Motown musicians, they rise to the moment. Dude, yeah. I, I've, I've told the story a hundred yeah. times. Uh, he went and got Jamerson out of a bar because Jamerson was drinking that night and didn't know he was going to play a session. And if you've seen Standing in the Shadows of Motown, um, they talk about how he was so toasted he couldn't sit up. And he laid down in the floor and played that track, played the bass line. It's, and it's one, I've told you this before, Jeff, we've talked about it. It's one of those holy grails for bass players. Yeah. Because... Yeah. It's not just that it's got super fast or super hard. It's, it's hard to play it right. and It's all feeling. It, it is all feeling. And the, they mentioned the only person who ever came close to it was uh, Bob Babbitt, who was Jamerson's uh, kind of uh, understudy, understudy at Motown. And, and Bob was a brilliant musician in his own right. And In fact, he was more suited to play a lot of that psychedelic stuff that came later right. uh, from his time with like Dennis Coffey and people like that. But... 
Hey, there's a reason Mr. Jamerson was our number one draft pick. Yes, there was. Yeah, this um, album just... I thanks. Mean, they, thank you for reminding me. Yeah, that. I want you to know. Yeah, just, he's yeah, on my team. Yes, yeah, he was. So yeah, no, this 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 deserves. I made my I named my son after Hank Aaron and James Jamerson. That makes so, sense. So there you go. None That's better. how highly I think of both None of these guys. None better. Um, I'm sorry, Jeff. What were you going to say? I said this this album, this album just again. There's nothing more I can add other than to say it's for me. It is a top twenty of uh, any yeah, recording. You know what? It, it's not just Jamerson on here though that plays right. Um, was it? Pistol Allen playing on some of this on drums on this, I believe. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, it, it, you know, all these guys came to a. It, it was it was probably the pinnacle of their career too. That could be, yeah. Um, so it's one that if you haven't, and again, as with most of the records we've talked about, it's only about thirty something minutes long, if that. Um, but but and but the actual. Uh, the production and the techniques, it stands up to that. You can throw and, it on, it's listenable. And like right I say, now. this was the first uh, album that... Um, Actually, most, most, of the, most of your drums on this was uh, Chet Forrest uh-huh. uh, with... Um, Zeriel? Jamerson on bass, Joe okay. Messina and Robert White on guitars. Two, the three of them. Earl Van Dyke on uh, Of on course keys, it was Earl. Uh, and then, you know, you got your, your horn section. Uh, the uh, uh, Those two guitar players you mentioned were part of a three-headed monster. Yeah. Um, and, oh, and, and of course, got Bob, all the work. Bob yes. Babbitt on "Mercy, Mercy Me," uh, "Inner yes. City Blues," right on, and it, "Holy Holy." And the thing is, I was listening to uh, "Inner City Blues," and Babbitt's doing stuff on that that still reveals itself as I go along. Oh, sure. I was listening to that. I was like, "Holy shit! I didn't hear that the last time." Yeah. And 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 I'm thinking about it. You didn't hear it for the sake of hearing it, but it made that song. It drove the point home on that song. Yeah. Um. Now, we've talked about the albums like this that are like 30, 35 minutes. The next album we chose um, is a little bit longer. In fact, it's two albums worth. And uh, it's a live record, which is something we're always kind of iffy about going to, but this functions as a standalone artistic statement. And that's the Allman Brothers Live at the Fillmore. And we talked earlier about how um, uh, Jack Johnson and the first Weather Report albums were jazz albums that took rock elements. This is one of the first rock, rock albums that took jazz elements and integrated them seamlessly. It's a lot of improvisation. There are there are drawn there's are sketches of the songs, oh, but they're Lord. drawn out. Um, and it there's but there's no wasted notes on it. You could listen to this album ten times in a row and come out with a different favorite track from it every day. I've been time. listening to it for 30-something years, and I still hear stuff. Probably been listening to it longer than that. And I'll tell you this, you can still put it, if you were to take a decent jazz, uh, you know, what, whatever you put together, as you mentioned earlier, her band, and stuck in memory of Elizabeth Reed, you'd swear up and down it was a fucking jazz. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you this. Um, I have a friend, Chris Brewer, and Chris is the uh, nephew of a good friend of mine, Terry Krigger. And Chris is a drummer and a drum tech. He works for a cymbal company, I believe, in Nashville. And he wrote an article a few years ago for uh, Modern Drummer magazine, which was fascinating to me. For one thing, I didn't know drummers could read. So, That's okay. But, I didn't know bass players would shut up. So I, I read this. Bass players have been getting lesser musicians laid for 40-something years. Yeah, <laughs> um, but he... Uh, there, there's a certain... He, he did this whole thing based... It was how this album was basically Rock's version of Kind of Blue. It's modal. 
it, it's very much modal, even very though there are much. chord changes in it. It, uh, it functions more as a modal album. And he was looking at it from a percussion standpoint and a rhythm section standpoint, obviously, and, and a rock band is basically a jazz rhythm section. But um, it was a brilliant article in Modern Drummer. If anybody can look it up, Chris Brewer was his name, is his name. Um, and it talks, and it gets into some of the details, technical details about the drums that are in it and stuff like that. Because I almost had two drummers, two drummers, two guitar players, a, a bass player. They're probably the best dual drum band. There are no more. Period. To me, okay. no, no. They're the only ones that I ever felt like it wasn't it just a, a gimmick. It, it was a necessity. It's one thing for James Brown to carry two drummers because one of them had to rest because right. James was going. Because you're, you know? yeah. Wouldn't but, uh, look no further than the time signatures on this fucking. Album. Yeah, they tra- they're, I mean, they're, and they're not, but they don't sound. No, they don't. They, just for the sake of like a rush album, seamless, they are seamless. They are and there is a, uh, and it's funny because if you read uh, Greg Allman's autobiography, he talks about how Dwayne really had his head wrapped around kind of blue at the time they they were recording the first two Allman Brothers albums. This was their third record, and and Dwayne died before they received massive success. And it's still this album. It stands as a monument to what, not just great, well, what great musicians can be when they're worried about making music instead of doing, as Miles Davis used to say, posing for the bitches. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're not just jerking off. No. Well, you'd hear part I, two I of will this go on the back side of Eat a Peach. Yeah. Because yeah. there's oh, yeah. a lot of jazz. Yeah, and I'll be honest with you, Eat a Peach is one of my, is, I, I actually listen to it album. more than I listen to Fillmore East. Yeah. I, I but, think that if when you listen to Fillmore East, what you were listening to is... The greatest single moment of live recorded rock and roll, without question. Period. Yeah. Maybe the greatest single moment of rock and roll maybe, ever. Maybe. Um, they're they're uh, yes, one of their road. It's hard to listen made, to Whipping so. Post. Uh, you know, once you've you've listened to this whole thing, Whipping Post closes it out and not think, holy, holy shit, yes. fuck. <laughs> they're uh, they're roadie, not twigs, but one of the, or red dot, one of the red? other. No, it, it, it was uh, it, actually. I, I think he was he was he was kind of their. Uh, one of their like business people too, but he said he saw every show at, that they played around this time, and he said they never played really a bad show. I mean, some were better than others. He says they never played better than they did on this night. Yeah, they rose to that. Point. And the story goes after this show was over, they didn't know it was as late as it was, and it was fucking dawn. Well, now this album is is two records. It's a lot of music. It's not their whole show. Right. No, these songs. And are they long, opened though. the doors, and the sunlight came in, and people were just like, "We've witnessed something ep- epical." There's there's moments where you know that the, that everybody there knew the the kind of weight of the moment, <laughs> and that must have been true for this because it's, it had to have been. It is it is a staggering feat of. Musical performance, not now, just rock and roll, but I, you know, I think that you're going to have a hard time finding any live music performance that's not just as good, but you're not going to find one better. Well, you're, there's a, another, there's an expanded edition of this album. It's called the Fillmore Concerts, and it's a four disc set, and it has both shows, right, multiple and, nights, and and it's quite frankly not as good for one thing there's a lot here but compared to that it's very compact sometimes it, it gets a little excessive when you're doing everything well and you, you, a lot of duplicated songs and stuff and you think well that version was better but it it's and the and the and it has some of the stuff that was on eat a peach that wasn't 
on Fillmore because they didn't have the time mm-hmm. at that time. But even stuff like stuff like on, that they did on this show, like uh, when they did One Way Out, and the the album, the song that's on Eat a Peach, the version on Eat a Peach is, was a hit of some sort. It's, an, it's certainly an album rock favorite. Um, they fuck up in the middle of it. They come in at the wrong time, and they just go right back to where they were. Which is odd yeah. because that it's intro on uh, One Way Out is just like one of the incredible intros but ever. The way it, it is, but they, it's not. They bring it into it. It's, it's it's in the middle. It's coming out of the bridge into, yeah. after the drums, uh, slight drum solo. It's not a long drawn out process, but they they come back into it and the guitar solo is playing and Barry. And apparently the drummers too picking up off of Barry come in at the wrong Butch time, that. And, <coughs> and they do it and they realize it, and they just kind of seamlessly write themselves. Yeah. And that's what this band was capable of doing. And I understand why they didn't put that on Fillmore East, yeah. because it's like, well, man, they fuck up. Why put a why put a semi embarrassing moment? Well, I will tell you this: I, I, we were driving um, somewhere. Oh God, it's been a couple of years ago. Uh, Kim and I were going down to uh, Florida, I believe. And uh, she's a big Allman Brothers fan too, and I was listening because I was driving. Driver chooses. Yeah. And uh, now she loves the Allman Brothers, but she doesn't listen to the instrumental stuff like I do. Oh God. But we were listening to One Way Out, and I said, I, I mentioned, I said, man, that's amazing how they recovered. She's, it doesn't sound like they. If if you're just listening to it, you don't even. Notice you don't it. really yeah. notice it unless you really. Um, but listen to the the the, the original two disc. Two, two vinyl set um, and it, it goes without saying too that uh, Whip and Post was what was yelled at concerts before Freebird came around. oh absolutely and uh, it's a moment it, it is and Frank Zappa because people were yelling Whip and Post because that's what people yelled at concerts actually had the band learn Whip and Post <laughs> and they did they did the first part straight up and then they did the instrumental section as kind of this reggae thing and it was it was later band with Steve Vai and people that like that he had told them Oh God, them or us maybe, or uh, one of those albums that came out about that time. Hmm. But you wouldn't you are know what you is maybe when you listen to the opening of Whipping Post, you wouldn't know. I mean, because it literally has that. It, there's that grind the gears, you know, pulp wood truck starting in the morning, man. Guitar that opens it. Well, it's like thirteen eight time. The yeah, bass, the bass line, and you wouldn't well, have any idea it's going where it's going. The, no, you, you don't. Do. And the story is. Have you guys ever been to the big house down in Macon? No, no. we talked about. I'm that. dragging you guys down there one time. It, you got to go. It's it's a there is a vibe in there that's just un, unbelievable. But the story goes that when they were um, coming up with whipping posts and they'd had the body of the song, and they they said Barry was just over there kind of noodling. And he goes, "Give me till tomorrow," and he he went in and he wrote this bass line that is it it completely. Opposite of what happens, and it fits perfectly. Yeah. It 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 is it is the perfect intro. It's probably one of the more. And, and, you know, we talked about what's going on. There's just some that opening line of Whipping Post is one of the greatest opening bass lines of all time, uh, or opening intros to a song. And it's pretty much just Barry, who who played the way men play, with that a lot of bottom in his bass, none of this slap and tickle shit. He was laying the bottom down, and now he did use a pick. Barry's one of the exceptions to the rule. Right. Um, and come to find out, he used real loose strings, which gave him a little bit of a, a, a little a, a bigger sound. Presence, yeah. Well, the um, thing that strikes you about, and, and this is 
something I would say about a lot of Southern bands. I'm not saying Southern rock because I don't like that term. Not for this, especially. No, no, well, it's be, just be, in, in general, um, because it, there's a very specific. It's a well, Southern, Southern rock was a mark. Understanding it as a Southerner is different than having everybody. Well, Southern else. rock was a marketing term. It that, is. that the Yankee came up with. But here's the thing about those bands that used so much multi instrumental type things is it's so easy for the tempo in a song to get the <coughs> fuck away from you, and then you wind up riding a runaway. You know, horse or something. Not here, buddy. This does not happen. With well, these and guys. listen to songs like uh, "In Memory," like we talked about, "In yeah. Memory of Elizabeth Reed" and "Hot Lana." There were bunch these of are not typical. These are not typical rock and roll riffs no, to play no. over a four-four time. There's a certain complexity to them, but it doesn't sound complex. It flows no, so effortlessly. But because it's done that way, it has a certain depth that's not in other songs. That, that try hard. Oh, but is, those brilliance is sometimes like that. Oh, it looks easy. It that's, should, that's what a genius is. That's the power of having having musicians of different levels of musical understanding yes. in one band. Because to me, the thing that I always thought when I listened to... And look, Dwayne is, is A, if not the guitar god. But Dwayne Dickie, is the John Coltrane of rock and roll. But Dickie Betts is bringing something oh, that no one else in, in rock and roll is going to bring. Oh, right, most of the riffs were Dickies, according exactly. to Warren. Yeah, uh, he's the guy that's coming up with and the Dwayne, parts. Yeah, and Dwayne had this incredible ear. And of course, Dwayne, Dwayne was the leader. Right. Um, it's it's kind of these guys. This yeah, is Sky Dogs band. Chris Chris Burr did not mention this in his article, but I've always thought this album was a lot like um, kind of blue in that Dwayne kind of had that John Coltrane ethereal approach to it. Right. And you had this real earth energy that Cannonball brought in sure that Dickie's playing yeah and and then you have this kind of understated uh, passion that Miles had in Greg's vocals right and it's and his playing as well and it, it's it's not something that any other rock band self-contained unit had ever done before yeah it, not even close and it's not even just that the, the Almond Brothers are great, which they are. It's that this moment is them achieving beyond anything anybody could should have been capable of. It is a transcendent moment captured for you to listen to. Right. Yeah. And if you get into it and just really listen to it, just, I mean, headphones, big speakers, whatever. Yeah, put on your cans. Yeah, or turn your car. If you've got a good car stereo, turn it up in an isolated environment. It's not one you can listen to in the background. I mean, you can. Right. But, but you're not going to get it. But if no, you listen to Post it, will find a way to get through the background real quick. It'll yeah. take you places. So, yeah. It will take you places. Yeah, it is a transcendent album. Speaking of transcendence, the one other album that uh-huh. we all agreed on, and I, I've always said that uh, Let It Bleed was the greatest rock and roll album all the time, was 1A. This album is 1B to me, and you guys agreed it belonged on here. We're going into top 10 recorded albums for me now instead uh, of 20. I, this one, I think, is, is Who's Next by The Who. Yeah. And Lifehouse. There's uh, it started out as um, another rock opera, and Pete realized it wasn't going to work, and they put out this album of again following again our rock and roll adolescence. There is this no is an adolescence discovering certain things as he goes along. Uh, Bob O'Reilly, love ain't for keeping, for God's sake, um, and the final track is. Anthem. It's the anthem 
um, you will never find lyrics any better than out here in the fields. I fight for my meals. I put my back into my living. Well, but even even I'm talking about later on and on okay. the, won't get fooled again. Right. Okay. Um, first of all, this is an album that any one of the musicians was not there. It doesn't happen. No. Or it doesn't happen. It, like it's that. four legs of a table. It is. And you can't have Kenny a table Jones could not have played on this record. Okay? No, no, th- this is not something. Kenny for Jones could not have played on this, this record. This is a Keith Moon record. Um, and that rhythm section was so different. They weren't a standard rhythm section. Uh, Pete was more of a rhythm player than anything. Rogers, the best vocal he yeah, ever did was the scream. I won't get fooled again. Is is pure no. rock and roll. It's a reason it's been used. As TV show intros and Everything. God knows what else, because it's just I, an iconic moment. But you know, if you listen to them do that song like live on the Kids Are All Right when they played it at uh, uh, what was it Shepherd's Bush the studio and they did a concert for the for the movie, it sounds as good then as it did on this album. And you start with Baba O'Reilly, which was kind of the entrance of uh, Keith. You know, he started to play synthesizers a little bit more. Mm-hmm. It's got that violin on the end of it, mm-hmm. um, um, and it, it and it's just a, a dervish, you know. And then you go into "Love Ain't for Keeping," and even and, and the Aunt was songs, "My Wife." Well, now don't don't um, don't skip over because I'll say I think "Bargain" is a goddamn Bargain, masterpiece. Yeah. Bargain, there. Well, here's a, this is an album you talk about. There's the no filler. filler. There's no filler. There's no filler. That doesn't yeah. exist at this, all this, on this album. There is no. To me, "Bargain" is one of the great uh, like. Uh, rock songs about God, right? It's, yeah. It's the one that, to me, it speaks to me. And he wrote a couple of those where it's like a conversation with whatever deity with, with, with there may or may not be. But Bargain just to <coughs> me is like, you know, this this plaintive like scream of like, give me something. Well, Reveal it, something it, to me. It's like, okay, if we're going to do this, you're going to have to give me something. Here. Yeah. And... It, there's again. I can think of no other album where the filler has as much is as standalone as this. This doesn't even have a middling track. If, it if, doesn't. If this had been one. another band and another album, you could name six songs on this that would have been the best track. Oh, yeah. easily, easily. Behind Blue That's Eyes. Hard. Behind Blue Eyes, man, is one of those. And, and you know, there's not a lot of. And lyrically, it's so. It's kind of chilling. Strong. It's oh, it is chilling. It is. Behind Blue Eyes is a stark fucking song. By the way, there's. A but it's del- brilliant. There's a deluxe edition of this. That you can get. I recommend listening to the, this album first as it was released. Yeah. But there is an alternate track, where they do Behind Blue Eyes, with Al Cooper playing organ on it. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, it's yeah. probably a better. Need to hear standalone that. kind of thing, Need to hear that. but it wouldn't have fit on the album as well. This one, the album reads well from beginning to end, as you would expect, being as it was originally going to be a, a, a concept album, a rock opera. Um, it ends as spectacularly as any album's ever ended. It, it, it won't get fooled again. It's got to be the greatest closing track. I, I can't think this of one that comes close. Pete, to me, this is Pete's strongest moment. Oh, easily as a, as a lyricist. It's all and I right think here. I think that, you know to me the thing about this album is that we'll go back to the the lead off. It's a Bob O'Reilly's a great song. I love it. When you get to that bridge and it cuts into Townsend singing, and of course he doesn't have the range. Uh, he doesn't have the no, Roger Dalton range, 
but that's what makes it work. Oh, oh because you know he's because agree, he's not man. just he's singing, singing about teenage wasteland. Yeah, he sounds, cry, like, you know? he sounds like a teenager. Sammy, he sounds which like was kind of his. Imp- it's coming from the gut. Yeah, it's coming from these counterpoints under the yeah. bottom. It's, it's, it. There's yeah. nothing on this record that I couldn't recommend no, a thousand it's, times. It's, it is one of the great rock and roll. Oh, yeah, it's, it's top ten album all time. For it's me. one of them that I return to it's, again and oh, again sure. and again. I listen to it, and it's it's. You don't have to be a Who fan. You don't have to be a rock and roll fan. If you're a music fan, this album's going to speak. to well, you. I got to tell you something. If you listen to this album, you will become a Who fan. <laughs> you yeah. have to. Um, you, you have to you have to to recognize that, that this like like the the Almond Brothers album we just talked about. This is one of those moments where musicians become greater than the sum of their parts. Oh, it, it's 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 like I say, it's these any guy I, these guys is gone. Yeah, the synergy. Yeah, what is just think of the great lines Townsend tossed off in that. If I swallow anything evil, stick your fingers down my, my throat. throat. Read yeah. into that shit. If for my a while. fist clenches, crack it open. I know the hypnotized never lie. It's like, holy shit. This guy is like nailing it. Every song on here is nailed yeah. perfectly. It's a there are no loose, master class. There are no loose ends on it. No. None. Not, and, it, it is that kind of album. And it's, it's you know, Behind Blue Eyes and, and Bob O'Reilly and, and Won't Get Fooled Again are the three that are mentioned as the three. I, I still think lyrically. It's not even. In Bargain where he says, to win you, I'd stand naked, stoned, and stabbed. Yes, we yeah. talked about that in one of our uh, other shows. I mean, it's it's he just even things like again, getting in tune is is to me probably the lightest lightest on there. Yeah, and it's it's it it could easily stand with one of the great. The only album I can think of that comes close to no fillers is Blood on the Tracks, and it's an entirely different kind of right. Yeah, Um, this one just and here's the thing about this: this one is just hit after fucking hit after fucking hit, and there's no let up. No, I mean there's no moment where you can breathe. Even even when it gets slower, you're like, "Fuck, what's coming next?" <laughs> yeah, the and anticipation. Yeah, it's it is it is it is one of those records that. <laughs> well, for my twenties, I thought that I considered this the greatest rock and roll album of all time. Um, now it's it's like I say, it's one B with "Let It Bleed," but it's still, in some ways, it's a more complete album. It's a more it's again definitely getting back to that whole concept of, of uh, adolescence when this guy who's singing these songs is re- it sounds like he's realizing it as he's singing it in behind blue eyes and and uh, and won't get fooled again and and um, it's not an easy love thing ain't for, for keeping well he, he, it's like this guy is he's he's this is just it's like a revelation to see, it see I don't think the and, 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 and I'm a huge and, and, which is not in question here as everybody knows a huge Stones fan but I don't think they've ever they've never made an album this seamless and they've made incredible music but this album just well that's kind of part of their whole shtick though you yeah, know? But the, yeah but the whole this thing album, that, this, this album, album doesn't this there, album, there isn't an end this album to me is exhibit A in why most double albums should be single out. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you boil it down to its essence, and you get yes. something great. Had there he put go. this, had he, had they put this out as this sprawling rock opera, like yeah, they planned on Lifehouse. Uh, I don't it, think, yeah, it, it, it would not have the impact it does. Instead, again, right down to the album cover where they're peeing on the, uh, on on the the obelisk. big obelisk there in the in the in the back. It, it's there is no slack to this album at all. No. 
and it, it to me, if I were to have to. If I were to have to choose the greatest album of that year, I would have chosen this. I don't yeah, know if you guys good. felt the same. I think we all would have agreed. Um, yeah. You know, and again, Phil Maurice, different animal altogether. Um, this is just one of those. For me, simply put, if the three of us actually sat down here and went general, which we try not to do because it's just so obvious. But if you said, "All right." Top five albums of all time for all three of us. This one's going to find its way in there. Well, I think if if, if, oh, if yeah. you if you it made is. a list of all the albums we've talked about, which was fifteen plus another four we all agreed on, mm-hmm. and you said, "Hey, well, let's put on one of these right now and listen to it." That'd be it. It'd be who's next. I've always said if an alien came down from space and put his little ray gun to my head and said, "Play me a rock and roll record," I would be hard pressed not to play. Yeah. Uh, who's next? Look, I, I think. Look, there's there's. There's albums that, that define their genre. You know, Kind of Blue is, is one of the definitive yeah. jazz albums. Who's Next is a definitive rock and roll record. Yeah, it just it is. is. And it's, it's one of those that, again, you can listen to it over and over again. You're getting something else out of it that you didn't get before. Oh, sure. Uh, and partly it's just so fucking packed. Yeah, it's not tiresome. And it will make you think <laughs> of like a million different uh, CSI shows. Well, <laughs> I don't begrudge anybody making his money. Uh, you know... If if you listen to this album one time, you're almost going to be so hyped, so worn out by what you've just gotten out of one song that by the second song you're almost decompressing and you don't really listen to it with a full. It's it's that strong of a record. It takes a little time to digest. It does. It's not one that can be listened to and go, oh, this is great. It it's one that. But it is. It 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 really is. It is great. All right, guys. There you have it. 1971 in a very long-winded nutshell so um, obviously a lot of talk to talk about it in 1971 absolutely and, and Good guys year. anybody wants to argue with us on our facebook page feel free argue with us we've oh, been we, wrong we, once or twice before well maybe you guys have um we we uh first of all i want to tell you guys i've missed you i've missed you guys i this really have uh, i've been looking forward to this all day yeah and for it's been a good to be out here. little background, we had we got together a couple of weeks ago. Um, we had some technical problems. We ended up just hanging out for a little while. We had holiday last week. We've had some stuff going on then, so we, we kind of threw this one together tonight. We knew what we were going to talk about, but we, we said, okay, we got a little time here. Let's do it now. And um, I, I forget how much I enjoyed doing this sometimes until I'm doing it again it's just it's it's always a lot of fun um we'll be back next week with uh shell shock nation we're way behind on shell shock yes we has are. anything happened politically in the oh last I think we could think Come of on. a few things to to, to the landscape guys, hasn't gotten more bleak has it one no. thing one thing I, I don't think we realized is uh, we've been doing this for a year now wow happy uh, anniversary we started boys. we started this in the middle of November uh the first one we did was the shell shock nation we did two podcasts. We did the live, we, we, and we did it once before that, and we did the live stream of yeah. the uh, the election, um, and then. So we're at a year from the uh, Biden election. Yes, we and we crazy. we've been doing uh, this one. We started in the middle of November. Our first episode was double albums. Double albums, which uh, had which had a Who and an Isaac Hayes. I, I think, and we I have think, not changed. I, I think Jim uh, was there with us that time. Got a little bit missed. We wouldn't let him include. Uh, Fillmore East on there um, because it, we were looking at a different kind of concept. Right. But uh, 
it, it's one of those things that uh, I think we, I had double nickels on that. It's made me. We both did. That was yeah. one of them that got on the. Right. the it's one of those that I look back on. And I've listened to a couple of them, and I, they were they've really brought me a lot of insight into stuff I may not have thought about before. Yeah, I've heard uh, a lot. It's given me a, an appreciation for Bill Withers I never thought I'd have. Um, Damn, I'll have to work on. And that. none of us have revisited Stevie Nicks. Not one. Not one time. If nothing else, I'm far, far better versed now in my Steely Dan. As you should be. Yeah, we, we've not go. mentioned Steely Dan tonight. Um, I know the albums. Didn't know the backstory. Uh, we have mentioned Warren Zevon in the band, strangely right. enough. Uh, but um, Well, I just watched we're the last still, waltz three nights ago. And guys, if there's any suggestions for a... Uh, uh, a topic you want us to, to yeah. look at. We're going to be having some uh, guests on in the next few uh, episodes. We've done this before. Uh, we got. Um, I'm hoping to have a guest next week on the uh, Shell Shock Nation uh, episode. Awesome. Where'd so I'm, I'm talking to her this week. Um, wait, wait, wait. We're letting. Dude, it's time for us old white guys. To, it's time for us old white guys to kind of loosen up a little bit. Okay. Um, next Shell Shock will probably be called. Uh, Old white man and the women who correct them. Good. Um, we need it. We, uh, but any suggestions for uh, topics, please let us know. We talked to uh, our friend Anya, who is going to be on this show, hopefully the next time we do it. Looking forward to that. Um, so we got a lot of things on the horizon. Hopefully we'll be able to do this more regular than we have. Real life has kind of interfered over the past few months. Stupid real life. Goddamn real life. And uh, we've had some things that have come up. We haven't been able to get together. Um, we're back on a regular schedule, um, so please let us know. Um, until then, I'm Brent Sanders with Jeff Scruggs. See you later. Best-selling writer, Matt Kearns. Peace. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. See ya.